Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to part 14 of A Storm of Swords, Scraps and Scrolls. I am Sir Buckley, as always your leading green person for these reread podcasts. We are a companion to History of Westeros's huge Valar Rereaders project. I hope you're enjoying their streams as I am on Sundays and everything else they're putting out as well. Yes, we are really close to the end. We've got 14, 15, 16 and finally 17. So we're very, very close to the end. Everything is ramping up. It'll be a good episode today and on time, most crucially. Yes, I must begin with apologies for the delay last week. Uh, Unfortunately, my laptop charger decided to die, leaving my laptop uncharged, which was pretty annoying. And even when it was solved, made uh, the week a bit difficult in terms of having to catch up and do all the notes very quickly for this one, etc, etc. But we did get there in the end. And I must say, you're all lovely in your waiting. And some of you sent really, really, really nice messages of support. So that means a lot. And uh, I very much appreciate that. Luckily, no such problems this week. Everything will be out on time. It does mean I wasn't able to record some Sporkle Spectacular last week, but don't worry, that will be righted this week. So not too long a wait. That is coming your way. Don't worry, that hasn't been abandoned or anything like that. Uh, Sporkle Spectacular will return with Clash of Kings closing sentences. That will be with you very soon. Now, while I talk to you from this very, very sunny England slash Isle of Faces, yes, it's getting warmer and warmer, which means my smile is getting bigger and bigger. While we're talking about new episodes, I have some news for you, some voting results. Last week on our Patreon page, I announced the next patron-only episode would be a reading of a whole chapter from The Great Castles of Westeros, written by yours truly, as a bit of a treat, and uh, it seemed like a pretty popular idea, so that's good, first of all. But I laid out the choice, which chapter would our patrons like to be read out by myself, and not just read out, but have some extra stuff included and answer some questions about, and all that kind of jazz. And the results came back very clear. There were a few votes for some others, but overall we had a clear winner. And it was Storm's End, I can happily announce. Yes, Storm's End will be the focus of our patron-only episode. That will be the chapter I'm reading. That really fits quite well. It's the first chapter in the book, so it'll be quite easy to explain how the book works and different sections and stuff. And I really like Storm's End. (laughs) Hopefully you'll be able to tell. So that's a really good choice for patrons. Well done, everybody. And I did put the question out to all the rest of you, the general public on Twitter, and you voted Storm's End as well. So everybody is in the same mindset about these castles. So that will be on its way soon. Now, I do want to make it good. Reading out your homework is a bit of a daunting task. As you can tell, I'm not the best speaker just speaking normally. So for something as big as the Great Castles of Westeros and something that dominated my life for so long, I'd really like to do it justice. So I'm going to go slow. I'm going to go careful and try and make it sound nice and everything like that. I did really think about doing a live stream, but not only is that a bit more risky in terms of uh, getting it all right, but I'd also have to spend a lot of time figuring out how to get that done. And that'll just delay it. So I think probably not. Probably just a normal podcast. But The mailbags are open, I want to make that clear. I want questions from our patrons, or from anyone really, you can get involved either way. About Storm's End, about the chapter, about the book in general, how it came together, writing, meta stuff, I don't mind, whatever. Love to answer questions on that particular subject, because like I say, I do love a bit of Storm's End. So that should be really fun, Uh, it seems like uh, all the patrons are excited about it, which is always good news. And don't forget, if you do want to get involved, this episode will be open to all patrons, that's all our £1 patrons and above, so if you want to check it out and uh, everything else that's on offer please do go and visit patreon slash other faces we'd love to welcome you you can find some good stuff there we love our community ever growing and speaking of i would like to say of course my normal thanks to lady raj mistress of force 
ask most of June, the healer of lesser poxes, and also welcome the wonderful Jennifer. Your generosity is very much appreciated, as it is for all our wonderful patrons. And like I say, not just one, a few of you sent really, really lovely messages of support, and that always settled deep down in my heart. So yes, Storm's End is coming. That's the next big thing. Sporkle Spectacular as well, and of course... We've got the end of Storm of Swords to cover. So lots to come on the Isle of Faces. We'd love it if you could help support or just be a part of the larger community. But either way, lots coming. Let's get down to today, shall we? Because no, it's not some big event like the Purple Wedding or the Red Wedding as weeks gone past, but some very, very big moments and definitely some step forwards for John, for Davos, for technically Catelyn. We'll come to that, don't worry. We're going to start far away in Dragonstone with Davos 6. We're going to go even further north to John 8 and one of my personal favourite chapters, More Warfare on the Wall. Back down to the middle in Aya 12. Yeah, things aren't going so great there. And they're not much better for Tyrion 9 as we return to King's Landing. But they are slightly better for our ending in Jamie 8. Another Tyrion Jamie ending. Jamie 8, he's trying to be better as we go to White Sword Tower in the Red Keep. Yes, very, very exciting. So lots to get through. Big, big, big. I've mentioned on Twitter, 40 pages of original notes, something like 24,000 words. So get yourself comfortable, really strap in here, and we will get going. Yes, that's a lot of notes to get through, but you guys, you make it a lot easier. So don't forget, send in all your questions, send in all your comments to me on Twitter, at Sir Buckley, to the email, podcast at gmail.com or to our Patreon, wherever you like, we want to hear from you. But I think probably we should just get going. So here we go, let's start with Davos 6. So we open today with A Song of Ice and Fire's best heist chapter, one laced with excitement and tension throughout, as well as something we all enjoy, Davos winning. We don't see enough of it, but today we do. He succeeds on a moral level with his successful heist, but we also see he has done well politically, as those men he talked about recruiting last time absolutely come through in the clutch. It's pretty damn rare for any plan to go off without a hitch in literature, let alone A Song of Ice and Fire. And to have it succeed because everyone is bought into the concept and believes in you as a leader, well, that's pretty sweet. Let's compare it to the other famous attempted heist with Ariane and, and Marcella in Feast for Crows. That one doesn't go so well, supposedly because someone told. Even Relore's Fire doesn't tell on Davos today. It's also our last Davos chapter, so sad face for that. But it's not the last we see of him in the book, which is a bit of a rarity. After Bran's last POV, we don't see Bran again, for example. Normally, that's just a sign. Last POV, we don't see him again. Definitely against the normal, though we will see Jaime again after his final POV, so maybe this becomes more common after this point in the series. I do wonder why George decided against giving Davos a single POV up the wall, just to round that character off. His Dragonstone arc is tied off in a neat little bow, so that does make sense, but it would have been cool to see the new state of the wall from the outsider's view. I would have really liked to see that. Perhaps it's giving away too much knowledge it will come to the fore in wins, because we do know Davos has seen the wall. He has been up past it, so maybe that's just uh, part of his northern arc that's coming out that George wanted to keep for himself. Besides, as we say, Davos going out on a win is something rarely enjoyable in these books, so let's not complain, let's just be glad we got it. And the sense of arc and a real completion that really stands out, because while this is the close of Davos's time in Dragonstone, the chapter begins very similar to his opening in one of Melisandre's nighttime rituals. Here's the first quote of the day. The night fire burned against the gathering dark, a great bright beast whose shifting orange light threw shadows 20 feet tall across the yard. All along the walls of Dragonstone, the army of gargoyles and grotesques seem to stir and shift. But this opening scene doesn't just serve as a nice mirror to Davos 1 back in Clash, but has two other distinct purposes that are served by George really going out of his way to make this a display of power that is way better than all of Melisandre's previous chantings. A great bright beast with 20-foot-long shadows. Hmm, puts your mind of a dragon, no? Something powerful enough to wake the stone monsters of Dragonstone, perhaps. 
We see Solis singing loudly, Axel singing loudly. The whole thing is a real point of emphasis. But why the extra focus? Well, first, it's a cherry on top for the power that readers have just seen. Balon fell, Rob got skewered, Joffrey choked, it all comes back to the leeches. Everything Melisandre said of those leeches has come true. So what better time to make Relore seem really powerful and get the readers to wonder, hmm, maybe this whole thing is real, I should really start paying attention to these chantings. Second, it's used as intimidation for the reader again. Davos is paying extra attention to this power because he knows he's about to go right up against it. If his plan goes wrong, even if it goes technically right, he might end up being very, very present at one of these chantings, like tied to a pyre and set a light type present. So Davos, plus the reader, has to consider exactly what it is Davos is playing against here so that the stakes are set, we know what this chapter is going to be like, and that tension is present from the beginning. Looks at end with some hints about Axel being made hand if Davos fails and stuff like that. Well, we're obviously meant to fear for our favourite hand's life. Characters have been dropping like flies these past few chapters, so Davos is no exception to their danger. We really can't be thinking, oh, he's, he's, Davos is fine, he's a fan favourite, I'm sure he's in no danger. That's really not going to fly in the Storm of Swords. We've seen enough to the contrary to know what we're about here. Yet for all that extra exhibition of power, we find out this is possibly a tipping point for Alor's presence on the island. There were fewer voices saying the responses than there had been the night before, it seemed to Davos. Fewer faces flushed with orange light about the fire, but would there be fewer still on the morrow, or more? So maybe the big dogs are all convinced, but the lower lords and general assembly seem to be having second thoughts. It's something else Davos is playing for. Maybe, just maybe, he can swing general opinion away from Melisandre if he succeeds. But if he fails, or again, if he technically succeeds but is punished in a certain way, there might be a new attraction for tomorrow's Nightfire. It's also interesting that opinion has swayed away, likely because of pure tedium more than anything else. Rulor hasn't brought them any public victories, so why bother to continue singing? This is very much an island still in mourning for the Battle of the Blackwater, don't forget. But such musings will have to wait, as Davos is reminded he has a job to do, and we can very clearly picture the old man being pulled in for one last job, looking down on a congregation while keeping his secrets close to his heart. More importantly, we get a mini-encapsulation of Davos's arc so far. Sir Andrew Estamont calls him a lord, but that doesn't feel quite right to him. He thinks what he's about to do is much more in keeping with his smuggler side. I think that by the end of the day, we'll see he's actually been perfectly mixing both sides of his personality. There's another quote. A smuggler must know the tides and when to seize them. That was all he was at the end of the day. Davos the smuggler. His maimed hand rose to his throat for his luck and found nothing. Now I like this conclusion because Davos doesn't have those finger bones to rely on anymore. He has to make his own luck and live with the consequences. I think that's what George is saying here. And I don't think it's coincidence that after all this, he thinks on that absent bag around his neck a lot less when we see him again in dance. I think he just learns that he's making his own luck. He's not subject to the fates or the gods like he wondered early on in the book when he was originally saved. This is him making his own way in the world and affecting the whole world with him. The excitement builds when Davos and the men start marching off, really dragging the reader in because we know something is happening. And even with our vague idea of what that is, we're desperate to see exactly how it's going to be pulled off. Davos thinking of his companions as dead men if this goes wrong is also a pretty damn effective way to build tension. While they are walking, Davos shows off some of his wily thinking by discussing his theory on how not to be discovered by Melisandre. That turns out he's absolutely dead on. Not only that, but he was clever enough to engage her in some religious talk, perhaps giving the idea he was swaying on her lectures and not about to betray her, as well as confirming that Sir Axel is a complete phony with his visions in the fire. But do Melisandre's words count for what Stannis saw as well? Hmm, very possible, it does make you think. Either way, I like the note that Davos is absolutely straightforward with his men about the danger of Melisandre, while also being smart enough to keep them all alive for the sake of their foolish pride. Here's the quote. I don't need men of honour now. I need smugglers. Are you with me or no? They were. Gods be good. They were. Yeah, see, this is really getting the blood pumping early on. Gets my early vote for badass line of the day. And also, isn't it just jolly fun to see Davos have some friends around him for once? Apart from Salador-san, he's kind of a lonely guy, so this is real nice to see Davos being part of the gang for once. 
we find the focus of this entire chapter, one Edric Storm, back in the Maester's Chambers, where we only make the briefest of stops. First off, you've got to admire Edric for his steadfast refusal to bow to a law, again because of his love to his father, but there's an underlying emotion here to the goodbye between him and Pylos. We see far too many children torn away from their beloved maesters in this series. On Pylos, Davos has this to say. Davos had been uncertain of Pylos. Perhaps he resented him for taking old Cretan's place, but now he could only admire the man's courage. This could mean his life as well. Our main man is dead on. This is a huge moment for Pylos. He is breaking his oaths to Stannis and his entire order by being complicit in this, which is likely why he touches his chain as he tells Edric to obey Davos. It could easily mean his dismissal from both the island or the order, or as Davos notes, just as easily could mean his end. So why would he risk it if maesters are so loyal to their masters? Well, Davos firstly would make the argument this is actual loyalty to Stannis by saving him from such a terrible decision about Edric's fate, but that's secondary to a man like Pylos. He's doing this because he has genuine care and affection for his student, because he's the type of man who will risk both being fired and being burnt to keep a child safe. He does up Edric's hood, he helps set up Davos's authority with a reminder about previous lessons on kingship and handship, and he cares, that's the bottom line, he cares about Edric. With this act he really catapults himself to the upper ranks of our most beloved maesters in the series. After this chapter, he only gets two off-handed mentions from Davos in Dance, and personally I really hope we do get to see him again in the future, after just a couple of short paragraphs in the Maester's Chambers, we run into our first roadblock, that classic Edric Storm stubbornness. But we should be clear, Edric isn't being petulant or annoying here, even if his voice does ring slightly of a highborn who is used to being obeyed. He's hesitating because he believes it would be impolite to leave without saying goodbye to Shireen, and there might be an element of a childhood crush there, maybe there's a little bit of a hint. But mainly it's because he's smart enough to sniff out that something is not quite right about all this. And he is all about chivalry and proper conduct, so would not dare to be part of something underhanded. Unfortunately, Davos has to resort to semi-threats and half-lies, probably the part of this that bothers him the most, but importantly, he focuses in on his shortened fingers once more, prompting Edric to say he should not have done that. We've spoken before about how Edric, in many ways, exemplifies the best qualities of the individual Baratheon brothers, and I think George includes this as a last reminder of such. Edric has a moral code that he sticks to, and is happy to apply to his elders. Yet again, he has me lamenting the forgotten five-year gap I'd really like to see grown-up Edric. But just like that, he's gone. Edric leaves, out on a ship with all of Davos's accomplices, minus Sir Roland Storm. And I've always liked that one Storm goes and one still stays. An equally brave gesture, but one that works out pretty well, as Sir Roland will be left behind as Dragonstone's Castellan later on. What does that mean for him when we'll come to Loris's supposed attack on the castle, and for Pylos while we're there? Who knows, but that's a chat for another day. We already know things have been stepped up another level because guards have now been tied up, but the whole thing has been incredibly simple, really. What has Davos really done except pick a good time to go and get Edric and plonk him on a ship? But that's where the ball drops. Yes, it's simple, but it's damning. The reader now realises this isn't going to be about some overly complicated voiceover-laden heist. It's going to be about the consequences. Because while we've all been excited about what's going on, what's actually happened here is Davos has just betrayed Stannis Baratheon, which is not a good idea. Hence the constant references to his finger bones in this chapter. That's what happened when Davos saved Stannis' life, so what's going to happen now he's full-on betrayed him? As the young knight tells us, the simple part is done. Now comes the toughie. Next quote. Dragonstone had never seemed so dark and fearsome. He walked slowly, his footsteps echoing off black walls and dragons. Stone dragons who will never wake, I pray. The stone drum loomed huge in front of him. How much of a dead man walking vibe is this? Again, readers' stomachs are dropping. Not only has Davos straight had betrayed to Stannis, he's now going to walk up to the man and admit it. And clearly, we are meant to get the feeling this will not go well, that this might be Davos's final walk through the castle. That raises tension, sure, but it also raises respect for Davos being brave enough to go and admit what he's done. He says he's not as brave or as good as a man without those finger bones. I say, just take a look at what you're doing, Davos. There's your evidence. If he survived this night, he would take Devon and sail home to Cape Wrath and his gentle Maya. 
We will grieve together for our dead sons, raise the living ones to be good men, and speak no more of kings. Again, obvious tension building techniques from George with the if he survives the night, but rereaders know the irony of this sentence, with Davos actually going the complete wrong direction for this after this book. Still, we hold out hope that Maya will actually see her husband again one day. Regardless that is skipping ahead, it's supposed to be all doom and gloom when Davos reaches the chamber of the painted table. Just to hold the tension more, Davos arrives at the chamber first and has to wait. And what is worse than waiting when you know you're in trouble? Davos is basically sitting outside the principal's office at this point. But we do get some interesting stuff as he waits. First, he muses again on the architecture of the island and the fact this was home to Targaryens and their secret firepowers. I'm not sure on the symbolism of Davos thinking of them at this specific moment, but definitely intrigues me and just gets that stone dragon vibe in our heads again. Even more interesting is when he turns to the painted table and his shadow falls across it like a sword. Stannis' shadow already fell specifically on King's Landing in Davos' last chapter, which I'm sure got plenty of minds worrying. Perhaps it is supposed to foreshadow Stannis turning his back on the Iron Throne, as he'll do at the end of this chapter, but what is the hidden meaning Davos being represented as a sword? He's not a weapon guy, we don't immediately associate Davos with swords, so is it saying he'll be the sword Stannis wields? They'll unwittingly bring darkness to the land? Very difficult to say at this point. When Stannis and Minasundra enter, we see a continuation of the struggle going on after the Red Wedding. Stannis being constantly nagged about what the leech is working, especially with his success conditions being fulfilled now by Joffrey's supposed death. I also find it interesting that the Red Wedding news was first and foremost in Davos's last chapter, whereas the Purple Wedding has been left here until the end. Next quote. Free is free, came Melisandre's answer. I swear to you, your grace, I saw him die and heard his mother's wail. In the nightfire, Stannis and Melisandre came through the door together. The flames are full of tricks. What is, what will be, what may be. You cannot tell me for a certainty. Your grace, Davos stepped forward. Lady Melisandre saw it true. Your nephew Joffrey is dead. First off, Melisandre helps me out by pointing out something I missed last week. I thought Joffrey's naming of Widow's Whale was an ironic nod to Marjorie, but I forgot that Cersei was also a widow and certainly did a bit of wailing in that chapter. Still a rubbish name for a sword though. But anyway, Melisandre is pushing her argument and Stannis is still trying to refute it. Dancing on the flames not being reliable, this doesn't count as a win, I don't have to make this decision leave me alone. Clearly, he doesn't want any part of the Edric dilemma, because last time out, he was starting to buy into the flames a bit and what they said, so we know this is a delay tactic. Which makes it so brilliant that Davos immediately starts off by agreeing with Melisandre. It's very clever for a man who thinks himself only a smuggler, but is now a hand as well. By starting out in the agreeable, he puts both Melisandre and Stannis on the back foot, and gives himself a bit of an advantage in the conversation. It will also lend further credence to his later words, as he is obviously displaying he is not biased or unfair by confirming news that assuredly serves Melisandre better than it does him. Note that Stannis doesn't question the news once it's shared by Davos, a good sign of the inherent trust between them. Instead, he learns of Tyrion's accusal and muses back on Joffrey. It's a hell of a paragraph to summarise Joffrey's life. We get a reminder of how truly awful he was with the cat story, while also remind us what a bad start he had with Robert, a man who hit a child so hard people thought he had died. And just side note here, I wonder what the reaction of the court would have been if that had actually happened. Or more to the point, would Robert have survived long enough to find out what the court thought, or would Cersei have had Jaime kill him immediately? Just a good thing to think about while Joffrey has actually died anyway. But I digress. Stannis rounds it off nicely though. Whatever the failings of his parents, the world is a better place without Joffrey. I think we agree. Perhaps it is the news that Tommen will be crowned that truly changes Stannis' mind. He seems to have genuinely held on to the slimmest idea that those in King's Landing would actually send for him and just agree he's the best for the job if Joffrey died. Even though he clearly knows that will never happen. But it's this idea that Joffrey will just be replaced by another in the same way that Balon has and then that Tommen will just be replaced by someone else, and Stannis will never get anywhere without a major change, even one he finds despicable. Melisandre is all but begging at this point, and even when Davos yet again insists on using Edric's name, 
Stannis' defence finally withers when he asks if there is truly no other way. It opens the door for Melisandre to do her spiel, but Davos has an answer that really makes our hair stand on end. Give me this boy, she whispered, and I will give you your kingdom. He can't, said Davos. Edric Storm is gone. As if that isn't a thrilling enough sentence, there's Davos getting excited enough to use an exclamation mark when he finds out he was right. Melisandre did not see all this in her flames. She is not all-powerful after all. That's a really important point for us to learn. Melisandre is clearly not happy with this, but Stannis initially seems less angry than you might think, perhaps privately happy that the choice has finally been removed. But King and Hand still return to one of their philosophical debates, not only in what the role of a king is, but the role of a Hand as well, as Davos bravely goes to bat for himself with this quote. Your grace, you made me swear to give you honest counsel and swift obedience, to defend your realm against your foes, to protect your people. Is not Edric Storm one of your people, one of those I swore to protect? I kept my oath. How could that be treason? Stannis ground his teeth again. I never asked for this crown. Gold is cold and heavy on the head, but so long as I am the king, I have a duty. If I must sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark. Sacrifice is never easy, Davos, or it is no true sacrifice. Tell him, my lady. It's half a repeat of what we've heard before. This isn't Stannis seeking power or glory. He doesn't want the position. He doesn't want the choice. But he has it. And it's upon him the responsibility of saving everyone from the darkness lies. We know how heavy this has been laying on him, but it comes out in bunches here. The how could it be treason line also really makes me think of Jamie and Rickard Carstark talking about a multitude of O's or how following one can be treason even if it technically breaks another. Very philosophical in its construction there. Melisandre gets back in on the argument by insisting all Davos has done is prolong Edric's death and that he will now share the same fate as the rest of the world anyway when the others come. Unwittingly, she gives Davos the perfect intro into his final gambit. And I know that a king protects his people, or he is no king at all. This is such a strong theme throughout all the books I had to include it here. But for the first time, Davos is making the argument that this literally applies to all people. Hence, the beginning of the famous argument that Stannis shouldn't be winning the crown to save the kingdom, but saving the kingdom to win the crown. Davos knows this could easily mean his death. He even invites it, but he will go down doing his duty. Don't be fooled. The production of Maester Aemon's letter is not a ploy to save his own neck. This is because Davos wants to save the world as well as his king's soul. If Stannis claims he is the one true king, he'll have to be the one to act like it. The only one. The wall has been abandoned despite the abundance of kings in Westeros. So Stannis can not only save an untold number of lives, but truly prove he is above the other pretenders by fulfilling the ultimate journey. Hence, one of the biggest deviations of any single plot thread in the series. Stannis was a huge military presence in the War of the Five Kings during Clash. He is a brother to a former king. Even in Game of Thrones, we often talked about just how much his presence was felt by Ned in King's Landing, despite him never appearing there. Yet he completely abandons all of that to start something entirely new in the North, a place he's never even been as far as we know, a broken land in imminent danger by forces both human and inhuman, with no guarantee of getting anything out of it. But he goes, for the Wall, for the Night's Watch, for the North, for the good of all mankind. And why? Not because of Melisandre and her fires, because of Davos Seaworth, and the ultimate evidence of absolute conviction in both honesty and loyalty. It changes his life, and perhaps the course of the ultimate war as well. We won't actually find out that Stannis accepts the proposal and heads north until a later John chapter, but the fact they do decide to go is a great comment on the partnership between Davos and Stannis, and we get to see how brilliant a pairing they really make. Davos had to take the risk, but Stannis had to be smart enough to listen. Not many kings would. He understands the core mission, he knows he'll be called a coward, and that he's lost the war, essentially for now anyway, but he puts the people of Westeros first. And speaking of timing, Davos happens to leave Dragonstone right when it feels his most unwelcoming to him. Just to take a note on sequencing quickly, we're about to have our next chapter open with another character in John feeling unwelcome in a certain castle. So we always love those connections between chapters and castles. And before we go here, a very quick note on Edric. Now that we know he's truly gone, we re readers can wonder what happened to him after this. 
All we really know is that he's in lease and perhaps he's just going to turn out to be a victim of the five-year gap we won't get back. But I really hope we do. It'd be a real shame not to have him reappear or at least discover what him and Sir Andrew have been going up to in lease. Maybe we won't get to see the fully grown version that I wanted and the second coming of Robert, but he's a great character that would be fun to see again. Alaska, something we'll have to leave behind for now because the main point is Davos, Stannis, everyone else, they're taking a road trip up north. And speaking of, why don't we head there ourselves with our next chapter is John 8. So, smash cut two. We talk about the north and here we are. You know I love looking at some good old chapter sequencing, so how good is placing the promise of Stannis protecting the wall and the world and being kingly next to a chapter of a young man who is definitely not a king, or so we believe, doing exactly that. And don't forget Edric, a bastard with king's blood, was the focus of that last chapter, and what is John if not exactly the same? John 8 is the latest in a string of superb John chapters, and another in one of my favourite streaks of any POV character ever. We were treated last time out to a desperate battle of will and street smarts against superior numbers and an aggressive foe. Now we get more of the same. But again, this is not some mere skirmish, but a generation-defining battle, both in-world and for us as readers. It's the culmination of so many promises. The great and powerful Mance, mentioned right back in the Game of Thrones prologue, don't forget, finally delivers on his promise of attacking the wall with 100,000 men. More than that, after being a major building block of this invented world since the very beginning, we actually get to see the wall being used as originally intended, defending the Seven Kingdoms against a foe from the wild north. It's the wrong foe, true, but we finally get to see all the gloves come off. In world, this is the defining moment for two groups of people. One of them is an entire civilization in the wildlings, the others the mere remnants of an ancient order in the Night's Watch. For the former, it is the moment where it will be decided if they have uprooted their lives and abandoned their home country for a chance of survival, or whether it has all been for nothing and they will be left as victims for winter or much worse things. For the Night's Watch, it's the test of whether they can do their duty, whether they can do what they are supposedly on this earth for and defend the Seven Kingdoms, as well as themselves. What about the two major characters on opposing sides? For Mance, this is the big day that he has been building to for who knows how many years. He somehow managed to unite a thousand clans and bring them thousands of miles south in one of the great migrations of history. But it's all for naught if they don't get past this wall. But that's not who we're really bothered about, is it? What about our POV? We thought John's last chapter was huge for his development as a man and as a member of the Night's Watch. <laughs> well, just wait for this doozy, as he finds himself manning the world's biggest natural resource. The one that's been defended for 8,000 years. No pressure. We can't say enough about how big of a moment this is for John, as all the lessons he's been taught from multiple mentors are put into use. And as he's already suffered, it's time to say goodbye to one of those mentors, and one of the very first characters we ever meet. We'd best get to it. We actually begin far away from Castle Black, back in the crypts of John's dream Winterfell. It's been a while since John has dreamt of his home, but the dreams haven't got any less gloomy. John, once again, is feeling very anti-Starky. Not only do the statues of the crypt say as much to him, but he takes particular note of them gripping a sword upon the laps, and we all remember what that particular signal means. So John calls out for the male members of his family, all aside from Rob, and giving double attention to Ned. Why? Because this is a guilt dream, as we can say when Egret pops up. John perceives himself as weak and injured by dreaming his crutch into this fake reality. More to the point, he asks his father for forgiveness. For what? He does not say, but I think we can infer. John believes he needs forgiveness for Egret's death, for falling in love with her in the first place, for a great many things he doesn't actually need forgiveness for. As well as the new, this is a rehash of John's old issues of not feeling at place among the Starks, with his focus honing in on the crypts for some reason. But up above, he hears a feast. Recall, it was at a feast when we first met John, where he first decided he wanted to join the Night's Watch, specifically because it is physically pointed out to him he wasn't a part of this family by Catelyn Stark's seating plan. But John does not have the benefit of reading other chapters as we do. We know, or can guess, that this is a very different feast John is actually dreaming of, especially when a bloodstained wolf appears. Here's the quote. Forgive me, please. 
but it was only a direwolf, grey and ghastly, spotted with blood, its golden eyes shining sadly through the dark. When John wakes, he'll think this is Summer, having just encountered him back at Queen's Crown. Ironic, since when he saw Summer, he believed it to be Great Wind, and I think we can assume this is John's version of the Red Wedding Dream that other Stark children have shared, and that that wolf is indeed Grey Wind. I think we can assume this is John's version of the Red Wedding Dream that the other Stark children have shared. Note that Bran and Aya received clearer dreams prior to the event, whereas Stanza and John get a muddled version after. Why? I say because Bran is with his direwolf and Aya is at least in the same region. Sansa has no direwolf anywhere, Sansa has no direwolf anywhere, and John's is above the wall, which, as we've previously established, blocks off the direwolf's connection with each other. Without Ghost and Lady, it seems Sansa and John's Stark antennae are a bit unadjusted. They receive the same message, it's just nowhere near as clear. John lacks any clues to piece this together, so far at least. Coincidentally, I wonder if we'll ever learn about Rickon having a dream when he learnt of this news in Skagos or wherever he is. That'd definitely be interesting to find out. When John wakes, he obviously thinks a lot on his dream, actually getting a lot of his guesses wrong. But he also notes he's back in his old room, making him reflect on all that has changed since he was last there. Given the huge leap John will come to make in this chapter, it's cool to see him revisit his roots in the Order. But the time for reflection is cut off quickly as we're drawn into battle mode at the sound of two horn blasts coming from upon the wall. After nearly three books of merely hearing about it, we get to see the response in action. And right from the beginning it's clear, this is not some grand formation with Avengers music in the background. Even in the mic review, John is exhausted and still injured. He might have the sword and the soul, but he definitely doesn't look the hero in this moment. It's the same for the collective, as we have John rattling through many names again, just as he did in his last chapter to get us familiar with who exactly is at risk here. We already knew from Stir's attack that it's a hodgepodge garrison, but it's good to get a reminder. Plus, we have some more changing of the guard stuff and some new blood, as we're introduced to Horse for the first time, as well as someone who won't be around as long, such as Zay, or Zai, don't know, the crossbow woman. Last time out, we made a big deal of the cool logistics and details that George is famous for, and we're only going to get more of the same here with our education and true wall warfare. Bowmarsh had left Castle Black well supplied in everything save men. So before those logistics and quickly cobbled together defences are enacted, we have John, Donald, and basically everyone else looking out on the dark forest, wondering what is about to come out of the unknown. We've seen Tyrion do it, we've seen John do it, and even on his way up, John is actually thinking their luck is just wildlings at the door. So yes, it could be worse but that doesn't make the prospect any easier for these men to deal with. But staring into the shadow isn't going to help anyone, so our favourite commander and the man in charge of defending the wall yet again gives our first bone-chilling order. Give me light, he roared. Here we get our first difference between this battle and the show version, which, we should mention, is amazing. Look at the sheer logistics and effort George has to go through just to light the damn scene and let us see the enemy. Even then, we don't just turn the lights on and start counting. Here's fleeting glimpses of monsters moving through shadow, because again... George is a horror writer and knows how to milk this reveal for his utmost terror and suspense. John and Donald begin hearing a mammoth, then John thinks twelve. When they finally light a tree, he declares there are hundreds, and the air is filled with the roar of giants. Okay, now we're on, now we're getting somewhere. Incidentally, remember right back at the beginning of Storm, when we asked about what happened to these hundred giants and mammoths? Well, we're about to see the end of a good number, but I still want to know about the rest, they're still bothering me. Here's a big quote as we really start cooking with fire here. And now the wildlings answered, not with one horn but with a dozen, and with drums and pipes as well. We are come, they seem to say, we are come to break your wall, to take your lands and steal your daughters. The wind howled, the trebuchets creaked and thumped, the barrels flew. Behind the giants and the mammoths, John saw men advancing on the wall with bows and axes. Were there twenty, or twenty thousand? In the dark there was nowhere to tell. This is a battle of blind men, but Mance has a few thousand more than we do. The gate, Pip cried out, they're at the gate! George is thundering along this chapter at a breakneck pace. We've only just got up on the wall, but already the battle is reaching critical levels in terms of the Watch's top priorities. 
Remember, we spoke about prioritising being a strength of Donald Noy in the last chapter, but it's a bit easier this time round. There are only two things to consider. The lip of the wall, needed to actually mount any kind of defence and lessen the number of attackers, and the gate. And if we're being honest, the gate is about a thousand times more important, because as much as this is an attack on the wall, it's really not. It's an attack on the gate. This small gate that, as John tells us, allows only for single file, is covered by murder holes, is actually twists, and it was also actually three gates. But still, it is everything. The attack of Mance, the defence of the wall, it all amounts to that gate. If either side loses it, they've really lost everything, and it's already being attacked. Worse, they don't even know that until a few seconds ago, and they can barely see their attackers. Now, we can say it's a bit easier for Donald because there are only two priorities to consider, but we've got to remember that there is 700 feet of icy wall between those two priorities, making the winch cage a third semi-priority. But seeing as that is in no danger of attack, we'll just call it a critical point to consider. But we've already established Donald was pretty short on men, so allocation of assets becomes Donald's main problem. Which way is best? Put all your effort into the wall, firing down on the enemy so barely any of them get there, or do you move more men down to the gate to deter whoever gets through? Remember, doing so means less men up on the wall, which means more enemies getting to the gate, and round and round the circle goes. It's an incredible balancing act, made all the harder by the reduced scope of vision and the slow winch cage being the only access between the two. Basically, Donanoi really has his work cut out for him, and the gate really could have done with one of those doorbells that you can see out of. But before that, we need to deal with whoever is at the gate right now, because as we just said, nothing else matters if we lose that straight off. Next quote. Must be cold down there, said Noy. What say we warm them up, lads? A dozen jars of lamp oil had been lined up on the precipice. Pip ran down the line of a torch, setting them alight. O and the O followed, shoving them over the edge one by one. Tongues of pale yellow fire swirled around the jars as they plunged downward. When the last was gone, Gwen kicked loose the chocks on a barrel of pitch and sent it rumbling and rolling over the edge as well. The sounds below changed to shouts and screams, sweet music to their ears. We've got a few things to pick out here. Firstly, Donanoi showing off yet more command skills by keeping his demeanour calm and even set in a grim humour. Recall, these men are not warriors, they're not even rangers for the most part. If they don't have a strong commander, they can easily break. But they don't. Instead, we see our early examples of how this is going to have to be a team effort with everyone playing their part if it's going to work. I think Pip and Gren are singled out specifically. We've already seen Gren in some warfare-type settings above the wall, but these two have spent more time together as the comic relief than anything else. Plus we've known them since their first day on the job, but now we're seeing them being active and crucial elements of the battle. And finally, again, this is not your usual battle. They can't even see the fruit of their labours, relying instead on their ears to tell them of their success. It's just so very different from anything we've seen before, so it's fascinating to see George play of this definite setup. I'd actually forgotten that we get a call back to the Battle of the Blackwater, when Septon Salador begins singing the same song that Sansa sings to the assembled women of the court in the Queen's ballroom. And I also love the comedic moment of Donald Noy cutting him off. I think that's supposed to tell us that this isn't some grand song-worthy battle of two great nu- of two great kings, a fight for a throne of princesses and heroes. Remember, we had a great big long song about the actual Blackwater at the Purple Wedding last week. This is a down-in-the-mud, all-gloves-are-off type of fight. There were, there's no time for singing. We need to get in the trenches. Heck, things are so bad, Donanoi is commanding men to fire arrows into the darkness just on the off chance of hitting someone. I'm not too sure on that strategy, but I get why he's saying it. And from there, slipped in so casually it really stands out on a reread, comes the biggest moment in John's life so far. I need two bows and two spears to help me hold the tunnel if they break the gate. More than ten stepped forward, and the smith picked his four. John, you have the wall till I return. For a moment, John thought he had misheard. It had sounded as if Noy were leaving him in command. My lord? Lord, I'm a blacksmith. I said the wall is yours. There were older men, John wanted to say. Better men. I am still as green as summer grass. I'm wounded. I stand accused of desertion. 
His mouth had gone bone dry. Aye, he managed. That's it. That's all there is to give John his first command of the wall. Clearly a major stepping stone in his being elected Lord Commander and his inner growth as a person. There's something so very Donald Noy about Donald Noy not having any grand last words or some motivational speech. He's got a duty to do, no time for extras. There's also the added element of Donald shacking off the title of Lord and saying he is who he is, obviously speaking to someone who was given the mocking name Lord previously, but also has to remember he is who he is. John cycles through all the reasons why this is a bad idea, why he shouldn't be given command. Even though he's clearly stunned, when he finally speaks, it's to accept. Why does Don Annoy choose John? I think because Don Annoy is a smart guy. He knows John can lead, he knows John can fight. He will be followed, and crucially, he already knows John has gone through hell and back for the Night's Watch. If he did all that, he can probably hold the thing for a little while. John's being stunned continues, as everyone on the wall just kind of gets on with it, because what else can they do? We get a long paragraph of the realities of this battle, that it is really just an exercise in physical and mental endurance without any sort of reward. They just fire on and on into the dark, and maybe, maybe sometimes get to hear someone dying. They are so busy that they are being fed soup in between reloads, Again, showing off that great teamwork aspect. Morale is tough to keep up with so little reward, in the dark and in the cold, especially when one trebuchet breaks and the other becomes ineffective. Prompting this kind of little side quote here. We should have 20 trebuchets, not two, and they should be mounted on sledges and turntables so we can move them. It was a futile thought. He might as well wish for another thousand men, and maybe a dragon or three. So, that should be fun for all you fans of foreshadowing there. But let's get back to the battle. Remember the communication difficulties here too. They might be receiving updates from down below, but they'll hardly be timely. Who knows how the gate fares if their mission has already failed. It's incredibly tough for all to maintain that mental strength. The wall is mine, John reminded himself whenever he felt his strength flagging. One more arrow and I'll rest, he told himself, half a hundred times. Just one more. John himself is still injured. He's weak but he pushes through, in much the same way Samuel Tarly once did on his horrendous march south. But more than that, it's the idea that he is in command, and he cannot let those around him down. And before you know it, for the first time, the defenders of the wall are actually allowed to see the battlefield. It's a nice long quote for you. John found himself holding his breath as he looked out over the half-mile swath of cleared land that lay between the wall and the edge of the forest. In half a night, they had turned it into a wasteland of blackened grass, bubbling pitch, shattered stone and corpses. The carcass of the burned mammoth was already drawing crows. There were giants dead on the ground as well. But behind them, someone moaned to his left, and he heard Septon Selador say, Mother have mercy. Oh... Oh, have mercy. Beneath the trees were all the wildings in the world. Raiders and giants, wargs and skin changers, mountain men, sea salt sailors, ice river cannibals, cave dwellers with dyed faces, dog chariots from the frozen shore, hornfoot men with their souls like boiled leather, all the queer wild folk Mance had gathered to break the wall. This is not your land, John wanted to shout at them. There is no place for you here. Go away. So first off, note the repeat of that there is no place for you here line from the beginning of the chapter in John's Winterfell dream. Nice little connection there. But on the one hand, the defenders are finally allowed a visual when the sun comes up of seeing their efforts not being wasted. They have killed a whole bunch of people. That arrows did strike. But also, how little that matters when the true sight of the Wilding host comes into full view, as does the reality of their situation. Another quote here. The battle with the Magnar had been nothing, he realised, and the night fight less than nothing. Only a probe, a dagger in the dark to try and catch them unprepared. The real battle was only now beginning. That's a great dramatic moment for the reader that really sets us up. And if seeing them formed up like this is enough to knock John Snow off his feet, think of everyone else up there who has absolutely no idea what they were about to face. When the wildlings charge with all their wilding ferocity, as well as the mammoths and the giants and the ram and the sheer numbers, we can see how the Night's Watch almost loses itself. 
How is a single gate going to repel all of that? And truly, the passage of George describing the wilding wave, the fury of the wild as John calls it, makes it seem insurmountable. Hence, John needs to step up, and step up he does. Two quotes for you here in quick succession. First, the wall will stop them, John heard himself say. He turned and said it again, louder. The wall will stop them. The wall defends itself. And second, any of you ever see a mammoth climb a wall? He laughed, and Pip and Owen and half a dozen more laughed with him. They're nothing. They're less use than our straw brothers here. They can't reach us, they can't hurt us, and they don't frighten us, do they? No, Gren shouted. They're down there, and we're up here, John said. And so long as we hold the gate, they cannot pass. They cannot pass. They were all shouting then, roaring his own words back at him, waving swords and longbows in the air as their cheeks flushed red. John saw Keg standing there with a war horn slung beneath his arm. Brother, he told him, sound for battle. Put your hand up if your blood is pumping too. Yes, exactly. This is basically John's own King of the North moment, except better. First, he lessens the threat and lightens the mood, showing that though he is just a young lad, unlearned in the ways of war, John remembers the lessons Donanoi showed him just hours before. Then he moves into the rousing stuff, the blood pumping, the we can do this stuff. Finally, he needs a call to action, something for them all to rally behind, and from there, essentially, it all comes natural to John Snow, the man with a wall. Next, we're back to the gistics. John chooses a priority, like Donanoi before him, and he chooses correctly, ordering fire to be concentrated on the ram as the gate remains the most important. It'd be easy just to get taken in by the numbers and happy to hit anything, but John keeps everybody smart. Plus, even better than Donanoi, he opts for preserving his assets by waiting until they are in range. He recruits the trebuchet, the catapults, the scorpions. Everyone's got a job. They are all in this together. And, thankfully for John, the long-held theory that wild things are not disciplined becomes true as their charge disorganises almost immediately and their archers begin firing up with no hope of success. Now, time for more blood pumping. Next quote. The black arrows hissed downward like snakes on feathered wings. John did not wait to see where they struck. He reached for a second arrow as soon as the first left his bow. Notch! Draw! Loose! As soon as the arrow flew, he found another. Notch! Draw! Loose! We get a brilliant passage on John shouting, the men obeying, and the wildlings failing. Notch! Draw! Loose! The ram was down and done, he saw. The giants who pushed it dead or dying. Fire arrows, he shouted. I want that ram burning. They might be the dregs of the order, but they were men of the Night's Watch, or near enough has made no matter. That is why they shall not pass. Oh, it's, it's just amazing stuff. What a scene. I love it completely. Even sitting here after already having written these notes, I'm bouncing up and down in my chair. John has said again and again that the wall defends itself, but here he finally gives some credit to himself and the others who have done the actual defending. But George gives us no rest. Even with all that success, a mammoth has gotten through, and just one can undo everything they have achieved. Hence, arrows are switched for burning barrels of oil, and a new kind of success is found. Giants and mammoths either burn or run, and the entire wilding charge collapse it most of it having been used not at all, resulting in this brilliant line. The bloody bugger's got my leg. Spareboot plucked the arrow out and waved it above his head. The wooden one! It's damn hard not to celebrate after hearing that, and the wall defenders don't disappoint, aside from John. He still has a duty to do. And shout out to Gren for getting command of the wall in John's absence. He deserves it, and we could all do with a bit of Gren and Pip comedy. The atmosphere changes quickly though when John goes down through the tunnel with Eamon and Pip. Note that John compares the tunnel to feeling like an ice dragon which is perhaps what John is really turning into. <laughs> Devos mentioned the Ice Dragon in our last chapter too, by the way, so more connections. First, they find that the outer gate has been penetrated. Everything they did up on the wall might have been rousing and it might have halted the charge, but the gate is gone. So too the first of the Iron Great Barriers, and then we come to the fate of the defenders. Yes, Donanoi was the last. Noy's sword was sunk deep in the giant's throat, 
halfway to the hilt. The armour had always seemed such a big man to John, but locked in the giant's massive arms he looked almost a child. The giant crushed his spine. I don't know who died first. So we say farewell to one of the best the Night's Watch has ever seen. His final words on page were about him not being a lord and just a blacksmith. But he was a blacksmith who ended up doing far more than most lords, far more than Geo Mormont or those in command. He saved the wall, not once but twice, with the very dregs of the Night's Watch, as John calls them. And in the end, he gave his life at the critical moment. If he hadn't, the entire passage might have been laid open for Mance's 100,000. We can take some joy in that, at least, that his death was as noble and as glorious as they come. Because Donanoi wasn't a lord, wasn't someone with a title, he will become one of the nameless, who never receives the credit he deserves or gets a song. But I hope he does in some way. Who else is more deserving than the Kingslayer at the gate? Donanoi, a one-armed blacksmith, killed a giant, not forgetting the others who also lost their lives. He defended the wall and had a huge part in rearing its next lord commander. I will personally miss him muchly. Again, John prioritises. The situation is horrible, but that gate needs to be repaired or they're in huge trouble again anyway. John tries to pass back command to those more senior than he, Sir Winton or Mace Draymond himself, but Eamon speaks up. And we should give a moment to appreciate how terrible this must have been for Eamon, a man who has told us directly what it feels like to be unable to help the ones you love. When this and the last battle came, he simply has to sit and wait, hearing all those manner of noises and know what his beloved brothers are going through. He might be old and a passive man in general, but I've no doubt Eamon wished he could be up there serving alongside them all. But again, I digress. Here's his quote. You. You must lead. No. Yes, John. It need not be for long. Only until such time as the garrison returns. Donald chose you, and Corrin Halfhand before him. Lord Commander Mormont made you his steward. You are a son of Winterfell, a nephew of Benjamin Stark. It must be you or no one. The wall is yours, Jon Snow. What an ending, and what a chapter. Eamon reviews everything that has made John who he is now. He goes through his mentors that we discussed earlier. And now, John is the man in charge. He defended the wall once. He's going to have to do it going forward too. It is a major, major moment for John. One that words simply can't do justice to. And it's all the better that it's coming from someone as awesome as Maester Eamon. And it's crucial timing. Recall the beginning of the chapter where John is remembering he's not got a place at Winterfell. But now he has the most concrete of places at Castle Black. Where he's valued and able to make a true difference. Stannis will come offering soon enough, but he's just a tad too late. John's decision is all but pre-made because of this chapter. So that's it for our perimeter stories this time. Let's head back down to a little more central, even though on the edge of central, as we go to the Riverlands and Aya 12. So it's been two weeks. We're 14 chapters past Catelyn's final POV at the Twins. You'd think you'd be safe from having to see the reactions of those who loved Rob and Catelyn when they received news of the Red Wedding. But no... We've found someone else whose pain we have yet to share as we relive the whole thing, except this time it was the person closest to the carnage of all. Yes, we finally return to the mind of Aya, just in time to feel that awful pain all over again. Thank you, George. For some, this may have been a moment of major surprise or elation that we're actually getting an Aya chapter at all, given the supposed cliffhanger we left her on last time. As I mentioned back then, I never felt that Aya hadn't been in danger of death, but it's still a welcome surprise, it's good to see her again. But it has also been a little while. Last week we looked at the big gap in Sansa's POV, so it's only fair we do the same for the other Stark sister. Aya is the overall leader in POV chapters in this book, so obviously we've been seeing her often and regularly. Which means a 13 chapter gap really stands out even if it pales into comparison to someone like Sansa, who has the largest gap of anyone in the book, I proved it last week with math. Why the long wait for another Aya? Well, mostly it's to drag out the aforementioned cliffhanger, but it's also because George really does enjoy spreading out our reminders of this pain. Again, thanks George. And like Sansa before her, Aya has become adrift. She's stopped feeling. 
What use is keeping track of time when you've lost all, when your world is pain and nothing else? Aya has become disconnected from the world, and to be honest, a lot of that disconnection is going to linger for a lot longer than this one chapter. But she does get a huge reconnection to family and purpose here, even if she can't fully realise it yet. As well as having a long gap, Aya only has one chapter remaining after this, as the focus lines up almost exclusively at King's Landing and Castle Black for the close of the book. Given the violence and path changing that occurs in that final chapter, we really need this one to establish her post-wedding time with Sandor before he, quote, dies, and really ramp up the conclusion of not only Aya's arc, but her time on the continent of her birth. The chapter opens with Aya in a pretty bad way, unsurprisingly. Again, I love to compare these sisters, and if we had asked you in Game of Thrones which of them would completely collapse under the news of Rob and Catelyn's death, and who would keep a clear face and carry on, you would almost certainly have said Sansa for the former, and Aya for the latter. Yet the opposite actually happens here in the books. In fairness, Aya was a lot closer and knows more details, and is younger, we shouldn't forget, so it's no surprise that she finds herself under a deep blanket of melancholy. Aside from the clear emotional pain of losing family members, she's also lost her only purpose in life. Ever since she left King's Landing a century ago, she only wanted one thing, and it's been removed. She's lost Gendry and the Brotherhood as well, so what else is there? At least, what else is there for human Aya, is the first quote of the chapter. When she bared her teeth, even men would run from her. Her belly was never empty long, and her fur kept her warm even when the wind was blowing cold. And her brothers and sisters were there, many and more of them, fierce and terrible, and hers. They would never leave her. This paragraph is strikingly similar to some of Bran's from his time in the crypts, and actually back at the beginning of this book. Human life sucks, both emotionally and physically, so Aya seeks a relief from both, and finds it. Wolves are warm, you get to feel some victories as a wolf, you don't have to fear men, You've, they fear you. A wolf has a pack, and that's all Aya has ever wanted. She felt outcast when she had one, she's been physically alone out on the road for what seems like forever, and most of her pack are slain. Hence, she clearly seeks some emotional refuge in her wolf pack to mask some of her pain. Of course, this is as dangerous for Aya as it was for Bran, but she doesn't have a Jojen to warn her. On the one hand, it seems Aya's extreme emotions have increased her linking power with Nymeria. While she had plenty of wolf dreams before, they certainly weren't this frequent or seemingly this clear. She was more of a just kind of watching, now she seems actually involved. It's pretty impressive that she's getting all these without actually being present with Nymeria. The difference is that the brand has the power to do all this while waking still, but it makes you wonder about Aya and what might have been without the soon coming massive increase in direwolf distance. Hmm. But who can blame her given what her days are like? Sandor again is not the best person to be around whilst during mourning. Just as she is emotionally, Aya and Sandor physically drift without any purpose or aim, pretty much just lost in the world. She was too empty to talk, and the hound was too angry. She could feel the fury in him, she could see it on his face, the way his mouth would tie and twist, the looks he gave her. This is an interesting passage, because it doesn't directly hit me why Sandor is so angry. Is it merely the loss of potential earnings, or perhaps his high aspirations of serving in Rob's army? He felt hard done by before, so it certainly makes sense that this latest setback is just pushing the envelope a bit too far. The romantics among us may want to believe at least a percentage of Sandor's anger is directed at the phrase for being such liars and bullshitters and fakers. Unfortunately, I doubt it. I do think it's just that feeling he can't get a hold of any money and that he has also lost any sense of direction. It's a long old fool from the position he held prior to the Blackwater. Perhaps he's even regretting that decision. More importantly, it's looking like a pretty difficult road to get back to fighting Gregor, an idea we will return to later in this chapter. Perhaps this futile and unresolved anger is supposed to show off something the show hits on, with Sandor supposedly being an example of what I will become if she lets this need for vengeance dominate her life. If so, it's still going to be a long time until she realises it. In this same passage, Aya tells us that she's literally staying with the Hound because she can't think of anything else to do. She's either hurt about or angry with anyone she's been in a pack with. 
Sometimes she dreams of leaving. Sometimes she even thinks about killing him. She never does either. Why? Because she doesn't have the drive or motivation to. There's no point now. She might as well drift, completely empty, and watching Sandor's rages with blank eyes. So we have a very sad atmosphere that's at high contrast with our recent chapters. We've had the excitement of the Purple Wedding, Edric's storm being sprung from Dragonstone, and the defence of the wall in that great battle. Our characters have all hit major points or turns in their lives. Sansa has escaped, Davos has changed the direction of a king, John is commanding the wall. What about Arya? She's just drifting and forgotten. There's a real sense of Arya just having the worst luck, being downtrodden and forgotten. This whole chapter is grey and slow. Next quote. She never wanted to speak to them either. It was as if they lived in some distant land or spoke a queer alien tongue. They had nothing to do with her, or her with them. So that's just further evidence of this disconnection from the world at large, and a large hint of what's to come for Aya. The people of Westeros don't mean anything to her anymore, she doesn't feel one of them. It will feed into her leaving, but also the easiness with which she will soon come to kill. Here's another quote on these two loners interacting with other people. Besides, it wasn't safe to be seen. From time to time, columns of horsemen passed down the winding farm roads, the twin towers of Frey flying before them. Hunting for stray Northmen, the hound said when they had passed. Any time you hear hooves, get your head down fast. It's not like to be a friend. As harsh as Sandor is, because well, that's it, that is who he is, Sandor is still being protective of Aya, even if he's not really aware of it. On top of that, this gives a larger sense of danger on the fringes and hints that the main riverlands is kind of close to us for a while. As we spoke about before, George needs to give it some time to get even worse before Brienne and Jamie return in Feast of Crows. We've also had multiple accounts of different bands of men riding around and causing trouble throughout this book, whether they be lions, mummers or Karstarks. The phrase are just the latest iteration of the highborn bearing down on the small folk. Which makes it fitting we come across one of their victims, or a victim of the Red Wedding at least, when Sandor and Aya have their truly chilling interaction with a piper bowman. His left shoulder was all twisted and swollen where he met his arm. A blow from a mace, he said. It broken his shoulder and smashed his chainmail deep into his flesh. A Northman it was, he wept. His badge was a bloody man, and he saw a miner made a jape, red man and pink maiden. Maybe they should get together. I drank to his Lord Bolton, he drank to Sir Mark, and we drank together to Lord Edmure and Lady Rosin and the King of the North. And then he killed me. This is a really important little scene on several levels. The first of which is that it's our first evidence and account of what the Red Reading was for the common man. Like the Blackwater in Clash, there's a real sense of this being a ripple event that's destroyed the lives of thousands of thousands of men, and then cast them adrift in the world in the same way that Aya has been. But in this case, we get an actual account of the horror of betrayal. What bothers this Piper man most, even as he lays dying, is the fact that the man who struck him was on the same side. They did all these things that friends and comrades do. He was never even given a chance to fight. He didn't know he was supposed to. It's just a bit heartbreaking to see what this betrayal meant on every level. And definitely, his final line sticks with you. And that's all ignoring the horrific pain this man must be in from the description we get of him. But the scene is also important for our two main characters of this chapter. The Piper Man recognises Sandor as the Hound and Joffrey's dog, which he refutes as him being his own dog. That's important, but we'll return to that later. The larger impact is of this being another gift of mercy moment for Aya, as will come so important in her future storyline. Remember, she had a very similar moment with the crow cages backed in Stony Sept with the giving of water. But that was a criminal. This man is a bit different, and the giving of mercy much more tender, with this quote. The hound eased his dagger into the man's chest almost tenderly, the weight of his body driving the point for his surcoat, ringmail, and the quilting beneath. As he slid the blade back out and wiped it on the dead man, he looked at Aya. That's where the heart is, girl. That's how you kill a man. That's one way. What jumps out is the word tenderly, absolutely not a word we normally see associated with Sandor again. 
telling us that it's a truly solemn moment, as well as hinting at Sandor's possibly changing ways. His character is just so deep and complex, it's no wonder he's such a fan favourite. There's always another layer to discover with him, especially in this chapter. Back in Stony Sept, Angai killing the prisoner was half a punishment as well as a release from pain, but this time, the theme of mercy being a gift is much, much stronger, and of course, we are much, much closer to Aya's Bravos storyline now. We know how big of an aspect it will be in her time at the House of Black and White, to say nothing of her mercy chapter and wins, and multiple theories about her future, one of which is linked very heavily to another part of this chapter. But finally, for this section, there's the whole lesson-giving aspect of one killer teaching another. We know this is going to come back as well, and after the man dies, Aya finally gets her hand on a weapon again, which may not be of importance for right now, but definitely will be in her next chapter. After that, we discover just how far east the pair have actually travelled, and that Sandor Kagain has finally discovered some vague direction and purpose. You have an aunt in the Eyrie. Might be she'll want to ransom your scrawny ass, though the gods know why. Once we find the high road, we can follow all the way to the bloody gate. I love the fact that Ira is headed to the Eyrie, even if rereaders know she never gets there. The three Stark women have this relation in where they travel in the series. Catelyn goes to the Eyrie and on to Riverrun. Sansa will eventually come to the Eyrie, while Ira spent most of her plot trying to get to Riverrun, and at least got herself to the twins on time. There's a common theory that Aya will return to the Riverlands once she's back in Westeros, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Sansa go there too, before heading home, just to complete this freeway connection. The two daughters retracing the steps of their mother is an idea that I really fall in love with, on top of the misconnection vibe of it being possible for Aya and Sansa to have come to the Eyrie at the same time and be reunited. This might be our Alassalar moment of the day. But we go pretty quickly from dreams of the eerie to nightmares about the twins, as Aya clearly shows herself still mired in several classic stages of grief. As a quote, we should have gone into the castle. They didn't really know that her mother was dead, or Rob either. It wasn't like they'd seen them die or anything. Maybe Lord Frey had just taken them captive. Maybe they were chained up in his dungeon, or maybe the Freys were taking them to King's Landing so Joffrey could chop their heads off. They didn't know. We should go back, she suddenly decided. We should go back to the twins and get my mother. She can't be dead. We have to help her. There's denial in there, there's some bargaining, even hints of the innocence of a nine-year-old who simply can't accept what has happened to her. Of course, this is Aya, so the confusion comes with simple bravery. She's more than willing to go and do the saving too, as she tells the Hound. But there's no way in Seven Hells I'm going to pluck her out of his castle all by my bloody self. Not by yourself. I'd come too. That's heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time. It is classic Aya to be so brave, of course, and we can hardly blame her for wanting to find some loophole or misdetail that keeps her family alive and well. But we know the terrible reality, and it's simply horrible to see a child who is trying to accept that. As if to help her along, we next come to the major moment of this chapter, and what will turn out to be an incredibly consequential moment in the series as a whole. If you're a Catelyn fan, as you know me to be, this is an incredibly emotional moment. Probably more so on reread when you know the full ramifications than on the original, where it's not even explicitly explained what happens until I awakes. It's difficult to know where to start. Probably the first thing that jumps out is how fully immersed in warging Aya is. This isn't just a feeling, it's not a flash of being inside a wolf. Aya is as present in Nymeria as Bran ever is in summer. She's fully warging. It's just that because she's asleep, she doesn't have the waking mind and memory of self that, that Bran sometimes exhibits. But to be honest, he's just as animalistic as she. Dead men clogged the shallows, some still moving as the water pushed them, others washed up on the banks. Her brothers and sisters swarmed around them, tearing at the rich, ripe flesh. The crows were there too, screaming at the wolves and filling the air with feathers. So the second thing that jumps out is the sheer scene of horror we find ourselves in. The original feast for crows and wolves. There are so many corpses that they are actually clogging up the waterway, as if we were on the river Styx itself. Certainly, we could believe we're on the road to hell. But as Nymeria notes all this around her, she has the scent driving her forward. 
Yes, those as animalistic urges of blood drinking and bone crunching, but there's a bigger sense of purpose, one that waking Aya has been missing. She paddled after the sharp red whisper of cold blood, the sweet clawing stench of death. She chased them as she had often chased a red deer through the trees, and in the end she ran them down, and her jaw closed around a pale white arm. She shook it to make it move, but there was only death and blood in her mouth. Ugh, this is too tough to handle. How many cartoons and childhood stories have you seen where some animal tries to make their deceased parent move only to discover there's no more life? It is absolutely heartbreaking every single time, and this is no different. Yes, we already know Catelyn died, we were there, but it's one thing to know and another to see Nymeria slash Aya truly realise it. It wasn't healthy for Aya to continue with delusions and bargaining, but that doesn't make it any easier. And neither does this physical description of our beloved Catelyn. The white thing lay face down in the mud, her dead flesh wrinkled and pale, cold blood trickling from her throat. Rise, she thought, rise and eat and run with us. This woman who we spent so much time with, so much time in her mind and soul, living beside her, is reduced to this. It's a very tough read, just as that final thought. It's everything I and Amira wants, for life to come back to Catelyn and for her to be part of the pack, finally. But men are on the way, and Nymeria has to run, and Aya has to leave her mother once more. And, plus, she does rise soon after this, even if she doesn't do the running and eating part. But that's for later, we don't know that yet. The whole thing is barely a page long, and in this moment, the first-time reader really has no idea of the consequences. We don't know that this is the Brotherhood Without Banners about to step into the scene. We don't know that Beric Dondarrion is about to die and give his life's fire to Catelyn Stark. We don't know Lady Stoneheart is about to be born. Aya thinks she's adrift and pointless, but this act actually just changed the fate of the entire Riverlands, and maybe more. It's hugely influential in the future, in far more ways than we've seen so far. In the interim, the Brotherhood Without Banners continues to operate without Beric, but massively changes in terms of moral philosophy. Good news for the small folk, bad news for the phrase. Clearly, that's the biggest factor to come out of this so far. Catelyn Tully is given the chance for revenge. After the horrors of the Red Wedding, we are given the chance for revenge, but again, we're not to know that yet. Unfortunately, vengeance not being so sweet is not only a large theme across the books, but for Aya specifically. Like her mother, Aya will become obsessed with revenge, but we will come to learn that this rebirth might not be the blessing we'd want it to be. Excuse me, sir, would you like it if we brought Catelyn Tully, your favourite character, back from the dead? Boy, howdy, mister, I sure would. Okay, great. The only thing is she's going to come back with all the physical scars she died with, she won't be able to communicate properly, she'll find no joy in life, and become completely obsessed with murder and vengeance to the point that will have you wondering what side of good and evil she belongs on. Essentially, she will be an ever-lessening shell of herself, living a cursed life that is difficult to call life at all. Gee, whiz, mister? That sounds a bit dark. And dark it is. There's a reason it was through Aya's eyes that we saw what reanimation had done to Beric. Now that was as to six deaths, not one, but still, rereaders know the kind of horror Lady Stoneheart will come to be. So is this a good act or bad? I think the important part to take away is that it's a connection, a moment between mother and daughter. You've heard me say again and again that Aya and Catelyn never seem to have half the connection that Catelyn and Sansa did. Aya was more of her father's girl, so this is really a key moment, especially if you are one of those who believe Aya is destined to return to Riverlands and meet Lady Stoneheart the woman whose life she returned to her, as I am. Multiple ideas abound about what such a meeting could entail, many focusing on the idea that Aya might give her ultimate gift of mercy to her own mother once the Red Redding has truly been avenged, so that's the two big parts of this chapter intertwining there, and recall that many of the future theories about the Brotherhood of Banners not only become more gruesome, but also happen to involve wolves, again, more tying into this chapter. If Aya were to do that, it would be incredibly well-fitting for her to start and end Lady Stoneheart, as well as giving Catelyn the best news she could receive before her true end. One of her children is alive. You know, hopefully Aya's got her own face on and all that kind of stuff. 
This is all very far in the future, so I'm sliding of course here, but there are also plenty of other theories about Stoneheart heading north and having something rather to do with John, or any other number of ideas really. That's all about discussing that Aya has also majorly changed the lives of Jamie and Brienne with this act as well, but let's try and rein ourselves in a bit. This is about mother and daughter, Aya and Catelyn, and I think the entire series has been telling us about how these two will come together again. Aya has saved her mother, has affected a large change on the realm she so suffered in, and really has a tie to come back now. And again, we should really give a nod to Beric for his passing here. His acts in the Riverlands are unequalled, no one has done more for the small folk. He is, in many ways, the best good guy we ever get. Let's hope he finally found peace. Still, we're not to know all that yet, like I say, I am sliding of course. We'll talk more on these subjects as we come across them, and especially during the epilogue time. And quick as you like, we're back in the waking world, with a resigned Aya finally admitting the truth. They broke their fast in silence, until Sandor said, This thing about your mother. It doesn't matter, Aya said in a dull voice. I know she's dead. I saw her in a dream. The hound looked at her a long time, then nodded. No more was said of it. Tough as it is to see Aya in this moment, I'm incredibly focused on Sandor here. The thing about your mother. What on earth is he going to say? Was he going to try and comfort her, try and you know, lessen the blow that she is truly dead? Suggest they turn around and try their best? I've no idea, but I really, really want to know. In the close of the chapter, we come towards essentially a massive inverse of the Duncan Egg Tales. We've got a huge and powerful guy who's closely linked to knighthood, except that this time we have Mr. Anti-Knight leading the way. We've got a highborn child hiding as she is, and Aya's hair has been through quite a few adventures of its own, similar to Egg's own famous Chrome Dome. But where the previous pair basically went around solving problems, Aya and Sandor are just trying to find a job and maybe some food. Our hopes of that Aya Sansa reunion are dashed when we learn about the clansmen we had taken away from us at the end of the previous book. If you don't freeze or starve, the shadow cats will get you, or the cave bears. There's the clans as well. The burned men are fearless since Timot One Eye came back from the war. They have steel now, good swords, and male halberks, and they watch the high road, the stone crows, the milk snakes, the sons of the mist, all of them. This is a great example of consequence and the idea that lies don't stop getting lived just because we don't see them anymore. After being armed and travelling to King's Landing, as well as fighting in the Battle of the Blackwater, would the mountain clansmen ever be content with just returning to their past lives, especially if we remember that King's Landers just gave them zero credit or reward and chased them off? No, they wouldn't. Tyrion's handprints are all over this. Not only did he arm them and give them the physical items needed for this increased aggressiveness and possible expansion, he gave them the idea. Recall when he first met the clansmen in Game of Thrones and persuaded them that they should really rule the whole Vale. Well, combine that with the bright lights of a city and what's actually possible and you get this increased activity in spilling into the Riverlands. Recall that Tyrion had some very dark thoughts regarding the Vale thanks to his interactions with Lysa, and this is apparently the seed that he sowed. So we can really look back at this as a crime of sorts from Tyrion. Certainly, he's made a lot of people's lives worse, or shorter, or both, and we can likely expect the clansmen to play a larger role in the future of the Vale and Sansa storyline too. So it's pretty fitting that we get this huge example of a Tyrion crime just before he has a trial in the next chapter. Might be you'd take a few with you, but in the end they'd kill you and make off of your daughter. I'm not his daughter, I might have shouted, if she hadn't felt so tired. She was no one's daughter now. She was no one. This is a perfect example of Aya's hollowing out and melancholy. Remember earlier on, she was mistook as Sandor's son, and she denied it of all her trademark ferocity. At least she's getting recognised as a girl for once, but still. There's none of that now, because all the spark is gone. And of course, the no one reference is a pretty clear sign to a time of the faceless men soon to come. We get an even clearer reference to just how troubled and shattered a child Aya is when we read of her ripping the village girl's doll in half. Remember, Sansa will also rip apart Sweet Robin's doll later on, so more connections between sisters. Aya's just completely damaged from all that she's had to go through at such a young age. That's a really, really hard passage to get through, but it comes to an end soon enough 
when the villagers ask them to leave and we see that, try as he might, Sadok again can't leave the reputation of the hound behind. He's his own dog now, as he says, but he's still tired of that same brush as his past. Interestingly, interestingly, the villagers seem to be in two minds about why they don't want Sandor to stay. The first is the one you'd expect, he's dangerous and danger seems to follow him around. But then they start citing the Blackwater and his losing the belly for fighting, which actually hits on a theme that's been present throughout all of this chapter, cowardice. Aya has been thinking on this right since the beginning. She hates cowards. Take a look at her early thoughts on their new horse, Craven. She was good enough horse, but Aya could not love a coward. On top of that, she's also accused Sandor of being afraid to die once in this chapter, and she begins to wonder again now about his escaping the Blackwater and running away from the twins, and asks the same questions again. Note that in her wolf dream, it specifically states that she felt no shame at running because that was the way of the wild, a contrast to Aya's waking thoughts. Because why does she hate cowards? I think because at this moment, her survivor's guilt is making her feel like one. She didn't get to go and fight and die among her family at the twins. She just ran away, although not under her own control, in the same way she ran from when her father fell. Given her extreme vulnerability since she left the Red Keep, Aya clearly values strength and bravery, so imagining she doesn't have those things is more than she can stand. Another quick quote. And Craven might have been a coward, but she was young and strong as well. That, specifically, is something that seems like Aya placing herself in the coward role. And again, this is all leading to her final chapter, where she'll prove to herself just how brave she can be. But this talk can also apply to Sandor, because he truly does make us wonder about his feelings and motivations. He was tender with the dying Piperman. He doesn't go off at the villagers. He switched between incredibly angry and almost docile, certainly aimless. But in our final paragraph, with our weird Duncan Egg back on the road to Riverrun once more, Sandor leaves little doubt about his eventual goal. Sandor took it off the stick, ripped out part of his big hands and tossed half it in Aya's lap. There's nothing wrong with my belly, he said as he pulled off a leg. But I don't give a rat's ass for you or your brother. I have a brother too. It's a sign of their growing partnership that Aya gets half the meal, and that she refers to him as Sandor now, but what we learn is that Sandor might need money. He might need a dry roof every now and then. He might wander to the Vale or back through the Riverlands, or even give a thought to going north to Jon Snow, but one goal always remains in his mind. His ultimate goal that he will not ever let go of. Greyhawk again. Ooh, yeah, we like that. Speaking of Jon, this quick quote. She still have one brother left. Jon will want me, even if no one else does. He'll call me little sister and muss my hair. Jon is Aya's one remaining rock, the one thing she can be sure of in this world. Remember, he remains her ultimate goal after everything with Sandor. She tries to get a ship north as her father meant for so long ago at the end of this book, but gets sidetracked instead. Sandor has a goal we can't let go of, and so does Aya. So that's all the non-King's Landing chapters of the day. We've got two remaining. That was a good time for a quick halfway break and some funky cool music. This will be a fairly quick halfway this time. We do have three different notes, but two of them are going to be very quick. The first of which is that you can still catch Girls Gone Canon. Like I said last week, they are doing their Jamie chapters, and it just so happens that we're kind of sinking at the moment. They have just released their Jamie 8 chapter this week, which we'll be coming to uh, at the end today. They'll soon outpace us because obviously we've got more chapters to go through, but it's another great time for comparison, and either way, you're not going to be disappointed by listening to their podcast. Not just Jamie, all the other POVs they've done already and have to come. And, you know, they're great, full stop. So make sure you're listening to that. Second note is I'm going to be talking very quickly about Brendan Beefish, yes, the infamous Brendan Beefish, and his blog, Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. I'm sure you are all very, very aware of this. It's been around for a long time. Lots of essays by Brendan Beefish, by others as well on, like you would expect, the wars and the politics of A Song of Ice and Fire. Probably, for, my, for a lot of you, one of the first resources you came across. Certainly for me, that was the way I found all these essays and got lost in them back in the day. 
But I bring it up now just specifically, although there are lots and lots of things to read on there, because of one thing I'm going to be talking about a little later, and that's Kevin Lannister. Because I think a, a trap a lot of fans and readers fall into is thinking that Kevin Lannister is kind of like the best of the Lannisters, and he's not as bad. But Brynn and Beefish, in a, a fairly old essay now, makes a compelling argument why he's not. Not just an argument, he lays out why Kevin Lannister is not. And it's something I read a long time ago and it's obviously kept in my mind. And like I said, I'm going to be referring to it later, so I'm just going to give you the information now so you can, uh, if you need to refer back. It's called The Lion's Shadow, Why Kevin Lannister Doesn't Deserve His Good Rep. And obviously you will find uh, the link and everything like I normally do. I just say go and read it. Whether you read it before the chapter coming up, read it after, whatever doesn't matter. I'm going to be referring to it because it makes a really good point about this uh, person that we really just kind of don't think about too much until now-ish and definitely in Feast obviously in his epilogue. I won't give too much away, just go and read it because uh, you need to, it's really good. But again, I'll refer to that in a minute. Third point and main point of today's halfway shout out is someone I want to shout out for no other reason really than because I want to, because I haven't yet and I should because he's a great member of the fandom, he gives us a lot and just deserves a shout out. And it's Stephen Stark, at real Stephen Stark. You'll know him, I'm sure. He's got a great beard. Just think of the beardy one. That's, that's who that's who I mean. And Stephen, he does a lot in the fandom. He's got two main things. One of them is the Hebe Dragons YouTube channel, which has videos and chats and live streams that goes across all types of nerdom, from The Expanse to Lord of the Rings. They even talk about the Princess Bride. And it's not just Stephen on that. It's also at One Questing Beast and at John Webster Film. You'll probably know them as well. There's some really good videos that you'll want to get on there. There's great rapport between everyone. They get really uh, down deep on, like I say, loads of different things across kind of nerd culture, if you want to call it that. And I bring it up now because I think today, in fact, is the day they drop a new video on Duncan Egg and specifically on the Hedge Knight. Now, if you're like me and you love Duncan Egg and you love the Hedge Knight, then this is the video for you, isn't it? So I encourage you to go and find that. At the moment, it's the, their top tweet on the Here Be Dragons Twitter page. So it's a great time to dive deep on that. I'm certainly going to give it a watch. And I encourage you to as well. But that's not the only thing that Stephen does because he also has another YouTube video series called I Know That Nerd, which I'm sure you'll agree is a great name. And in that, as you might expect, it's Stephen having a conversation with certain members of the fandom and getting to know them and certain stuff. So it's very close to how the Isle of Faces started out originally. That's the kind of thing we're into. So if you're a fan of that, you should be a fan of this as well because he has great guests on there. Lady X Triple, I think, was the, the most recent. He's had Joe Magician, he's had Shakes of Thrones, he's had San Rixian, people you've seen on the Isle, people you've heard of. Uh, Jinx the Air, lots of people that you'll know through the, throughout the fandom for various different reasons. So I encourage you to go and check out all those streams because they're a lot of fun. And like I say, it's very in keeping with what we like here at the Isle of Faces. So check out I Know That Nerd, check out Here Be Dragons on YouTube, check out Steven and his wonderful beard in all of its glory. That's uh, the shout out for today. I encourage you to give a follow and a watch and a like and all those things. So yes, that's my recommendation and I order it. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed. So... Like I say, fairly quick half-time today. Let's get on. We've got two more chapters to go as we focus in on King's Landing. And we begin with Tyrion 9. So we come to the first of what is the great downfall of Tyrion Lannister. And that's if you're ignoring the fact that he's already in prison. It's often said that George has a three-stage reveal method. And I think we can have three separate stages here too. There's the trial, the trial by combat, and his eventual escape. And all of that is just one big building block of Tyrion really falling off the cliff. But we must remember that the trial actually comes in two parts. We'll get the majority today, for sure, with some definite kicks in Tyrion's psyche, but the real KO is yet to come in the next chapter, so we're looking forward to that. 
Still, today we'll have more than its share of difficulties as all those suspicions of held Tyrion back over the years come back to haunt him. Loose strings gather around his neck, Cersei makes a real move for vengeance, and Tyrion finds out he's lost even more than he originally thought. We begin in the simple tower cell, with simple Kevin Lannister informing Tyrion that his first ploy to get out of this mess is not going to work. We can see why Tyrion prefers a trial by battle. He's smart enough to know both the evidence and the judges are stacked against him. And hey, it worked in the Vale. At the very least, it can be a delay tactic, depending on who he chooses. But all that is for none, because if there is one thing we know about the late Vardis Egan, it's that he was no Gregor again. And bear in mind, I don't believe Tyrion knows Jamie is back in the city just yet, so first term he does probably spend a lot of this chapter wondering if he's ever going to make an entrance. So Tyrion doesn't dream of calling upon him, as he did before. Obviously he knows nothing of Jamie's hand anyway, I think, but I wonder if Tyrion would have called on him if he could. Would he risk Jamie's life against Gregor as well as his own? Hmm, not sure on that. It's also quite Tyrion-esque to use the opportunity to keep the Martell and Tyrell factions feeling important yet equal by naming them both judges, as we discover here. Yet Tyrion must realise that Mace will be anti-Tyrion because Sansa would then be free to come to Highgarden if she were ever found, but we'll come back to that. First quote of the chapter. Write the names of such witnesses as you require, and I shall do all in my power to produce them. You have my word as a Lannister, but you shall not leave this tower except to go to trial. Tyrion will not demean himself by begging. Will you permit my squire to come and go? The boy, Podrick Payne. That's the first mistake of the day. Pride. Maybe Tyrion is in denial about how bad his situation is, but this is clearly not the time to worry about begging. As we'll come to see, a lack of witnesses are just one of the many death knolls against Tyrion in this chapter. He really should have realised he needs to go all out. Now it's fair if Tyrion is not entirely trusting of Kevin's word as a Lannister. I would not be at all surprised if what Kevin means by this is that he will try his best to produce any witnesses, given that Tywin gets a good look at the names first and gives his approval. So maybe this would have been an exercise in fertility anyway, but Tyrion probably should have tried. Pride is a one-way street at this point. Although, as we'll come to in a second, there's also the issue of what witnesses he could possibly gather anyway, but we'll do that in a minute. For all his thinking about Kevin being nothing more than Tywin's lackey, Tyrion still makes a point of telling his uncle he is innocent. Why does he do that? More than likely because he'd like just one person in the city to believe him. Maybe it's because there are no cameras here, no crowd, it's just him and what seems like a pretty straightforward guy in, in Kevin. So just between them, let's get it clear, he's innocent. Unfortunately, Kevin sets the tone for the whole chapter. Whether he might want to believe, the evidence just points the other way. And for most people, a verdict has already been passed. So now we come to the blank list of Tyrion witnesses, which is a really effective way of showing Tyrion's long descent since Clash. When he was hand, he might not have had friends per se, but he had plenty in his corner, either serving him or trying to gain his favour or whatever. Now, not so much. It even occurs that Bronn's famous skills of a sword aren't of use in every situation, as his low birth means he'd be useless as a witness, which leads to Tyrion thinking about his lady wife. It's the quote. Assuming Joffrey had not simply choked to death on a bit of food, which even Tyrion found hard to swallow, Sansa must have poisoned him. Joff practically put his cup down in her lap, and he'd given her ample reason. Any doubts Tyrion might have had vanished when his wife did. One flesh, one heart, one soul. His mouth twisted. She wasted no time proving how much those veils meant to her, did she? Well, what did you expect, dwarf? I love this for because Tyrion is condemning Sansa for essentially the same circumstantial evidence that's being laid against him. Ultimate irony. She has motive and opportunity, essentially, as does Tyrion, in heaps and spades, but ignores that, instead doubling down on this idea, he could have only expected such betrayal because he's so unlovable. Typical Tyrion. Compare this to Sansa wondering if Tyrion did it. They both mention one flesh, one heart, one soul, but Tyrion is much more harsh in his wondering than Sansa was. It's just a little glimpse of the bitterness we can expect going forward. Then again, there's a different type of irony, in that Tyrion is semi-correct. She did bring the poison, she just had no idea. And either way, her guilt is going to be just as assumed as Tyrion's, and actually, is no help at all. Her kind words, which she can only offer so many of, aren't going to matter if the whole court thinks she did it with or without Tyrion. 
Which leads us on to Tyrion's next and greatest hope, the man who saved his life once before, Sir Bronn of the Blackwater. Unfortunately, it's just the next in a long line of coming disappointments. And it was tough actually to pick quotes out of this long Bronn passage, <laughs> all of it is so brilliant, but I had a go and this is the first one. A bride. Bronn smiled like a wolf contemplating a lost lamb. I'm to wed Lollis the day after next. Lollis. Perfect. Bloody perfect. We waste no time with seeing how this conversation is going to go. Bronn comes in, dressed all in finery and looking pretty dapper, with the confirmation he nearly didn't come at all, before mentioning Lois and Tyrion quickly realising his best asset has been removed by Cersei. Which is unfair, to be honest. Cersei has been smart in removing Bronn as a crutch, but she's not the sole centre of Bronn's advancement. You'll notice that Bronn has been left particularly ambiguous in this book, we've hardly heard from him at all in comparison to Clash and Game. He's just been a part of the background, aside from maybe Tyrion's first chapter. And again, people's lies don't stop just because our POVs stop paying attention to them. Which is what Tyrion did. He got used to Bronn, he didn't focus on him, and forgot that this is a man after gold. Which is great for Tyrion, he has, or had gold, but he's not the only one anymore, and gold isn't the only coin, if you get my meaning. It's part of that unreliable narrator syndrome that we talk about so often. Because Tyrion has been busy focusing on Cersei and Joffrey or dealing with his two lady friends, he's failed to notice that Bronn might have wanted a bit more than payment. And now it's too late, he's missed his chance, and his lone shield is left him defenceless. Still, never let it be said that Tyrion doesn't give an honest effort in persuading his sellsword to sell him his sword once more. He tries Lollis's appearance and wits, he tries the fact that she is second in line, not first. He tries to make Gregor's not seem so intimidating, and he finally tries to test Bronn's ego by suggesting he's a coward. But there are no old, bold sellsword, as we were once told, and Bronn has an answer for every jab. If he didn't fight me, I'd be a bloody fool, Bronn gave a shrug. Might be I could take him. Dance around him until he is so tired at hacking at me that he couldn't lift his sword get him off his feet somehow. When they're flat on their backs, it doesn't matter how tall they are. Even so, it's chancy. One misstep and I'm dead. Why should I risk it? I like you well enough, ugly little horse that you are. But if I fight your battle, I lose either way. Either the mountain spills my guts, or I kill him and lose Stokeworth. I sell my sword. I don't give it away. I'm not your bloody brother. Essentially, Bronn figured out it was worth coming to see Tyrion just on the off chance he can offer something worthy of fighting Greyrock again. But the fact is, he can't. As he said earlier, Tyrion is all ifs and buts at this point. Maybe he could make Bronn a northern lord, but the chances are damn slim. So what fool would risk it? Recall that Bronn was just a random guy drinking in an inn the first time he met Tyrion. His life has completely changed and he's got way, way more than he bargained for, both when he agreed to help out Catelyn and then when he defended Tyrion in the Eyrie. The wise man knows when to walk away from the table. This quote we've just mentioned is interesting because, as we know, Bronn knows his stuff. And it just so happens this is exactly how Oberyn very nearly defeats Gregor. But that one step is all it takes. So Bronn actually was smart enough to foresee that this can only end badly without the outcome if we were to help Tyrion. There's just no sense to it. Bronn hesitated at the door. What will you do, imp? Kill Gregor myself. Wouldn't that make for a jolly song? I hope to hear them sing it. Bronn grinned one last time and walked out of the door, the castle, and his life. More cannon fodder for Tyrion to be better about. Except note that he's not nearly so angry with Bronn as he is with Sansa. I wonder if that says something about his attitudes to women. The truth is, Bronn does like Tyrion as he says, and Tyrion does like Bronn but they are work buddies and nothing more. I understand why this state of affairs upsets Tyrion. No one would only want friends because they can be paid, but Bronn's in the same boat. Would Tyrion care about him in the slightest if he was useless of a sword? No, it's a working relationship. This is King's Landing, folks. So not a good start for Tyrion overall. Complete lack of witnesses, the one safety net removed, and no ideas of what to do, which is a rarity for Tyrion. And all that results in a pretty rough night where, with the future and so uncertain, Tyrion chooses to think on his past instead. But what does he focus on? those he once thought he could rely on, only to find out different. Tysha, Sansa, Bronn, even Shay. He's unsure about everything, trusts nothing, and probably knows 
things are only going to get worse. Now, if Kevin Lannister is considered a neutral or best Lannister by Tyrion, which he shouldn't, which is why I referenced that earlier uh, essay by Brennan Briefish, The Lion's Shadow, I encourage you to read that either before or after because Kevin is awful, is the bottom line, and that essay will uh, prove to you why if you don't already think that. But either way, we get a repeat of that role with Adam Marbrand being the one to escort Tyrion to the trial. People like Adam Marbrand generally, but he's involved in this slide as well, as he brings more signs by his very presence. The King's Guard being lined up against Tyrion is not a good sign. They are supposed to represent virtue and truth and honour. Now we know the <laughs> what the reality is of that, but symbols are what matters here. This is a game of optics. Optics, I'm going to be using that word a lot during this trial. So what better way to paint a villain by kicking off with symbols of good and honesty? Once the trial starts, Cersei doubles down on this idea by putting Balon Swan in first. We've called him a top bloke because it's pretty clear he is. He's one of the rare Kingsguard who does believe in his role and his oaths and sticks by them. He even says some words in defence of Tyrion, but that's a clever tactic. Start out with that so any bias isn't obvious and people suppose that this is fair. Plus, Balon Swan is known to be a good and honest man, like we've said. The judges and the assembled crowd might start off with the intention to be fair, although they probably don't, so we have honest Balon Swan to carry them through that era. As we go, they'll become more interested in stories that fit the narrative as they get bored, so we can have that stuff come later. Because Balon is good, but he's so good that he's honest, to the letter. He goes over what Tyrion did to Joffrey after the mob riots, which sounds really bad when you don't have context or the rest of the information, and that's with someone trying to be fair. So how about when someone is actually out to get you and is willing to exploit those optics? Balon was Tyrion's best hope, but Meryn and Boris are very different levels entirely, and again what, sting, what stings so much about their words is so much of it is actually technically true. Outright lies would be easier for Tyrion to handle, although we soon get into purest embellishment as we move further down the line with Sir Osmond, although to be fair, Joffrey might well have said that all that to Osmond, whether off his own back or on Cersei's advice, we don't know. Quick quote here. No, Lord Tywin said. He was acting hand, in my stead. Classic. Tywin can't even let it go when Tyrion is essentially in chains. These Lannisters and their ego. Tywin has to get the little jab in there on Tyrion. Just, uh, whatever. Let's take two steps back from the Kingsguard, back to the opening of the trial, when the issue of Sansa was raised. Did Sansa Sark do it then? Lord Tyrell demanded. I would have, if I'd been her, Tyrion thought. Yet wherever Sansa was, and whatever her part in this might have been, she remained his wife. He had wrapped the cloak of his protection about her shoulders, though he'd had to stand on a fool's back to do it. The gods killed Joffrey, who choked on his pigeon pie. Given Tyrion's earlier bitter thoughts on Sansa and his need to save his own hide here, he ends up doing a complete 180, and actually relying on the marriages he despised so much. He didn't have to try and save Sansa, it's not going to do him any good now, it could actually do him harm, but he's going to stick to it anyway. We can, and have said a whole bunch of stuff about Tyrion and Sansa's short-lived marriage, we really can't argue that he did truly care about her. Quote from Cersei here. Father, I beg you to put him in fetters, for your own protection, you see how he is. Alright Cersei, calm down a minute. You've actually done pretty well arranging these witnesses, don't mess it up now with your overacting. Although, while we're talking about it, is this the most efficient thing Cersei has ever done? Considering the type of mind we'll find inside her head and feast, it's surprising she does so well here. I suppose it's a testimony to what she can achieve when the mothering instinct sets in. Or the revenge instinct, anyway. That's day one. That's all to day one of the trial. Day two opens with Maester Hour, and that involves the revenge of Pycelle, who definitely enjoys his time in the spotlight. Again, it's the loose ends that couldn't have possibly harmed Tyrion back when he was hand. What danger could Freyl or Pycelle have uh, ever posed? Well, here we are. When the procession, as Tyrion calls it, comes a-calling, it is yet again all trues. And the procession, if you forget, is it's just basically witnesses who are there and just happen to see things and hear things and that don't look good for Tyrion. 
And what kind of defence can Tyrion make against such truths? When did I make so many enemies, he thinks. True, in many cases, he's just been out and out making enemies, such as Bycelle. But much of it is these inconvenient truths line up too neatly with people's prejudices and need for a scapegoat. Besides, it's not 100% truths. Tana Merriweather straight up lies, proving her worth to Cersei and setting up that relationship for Feast. That's the other angle to consider. This is a court full of people who don't want to be attached to a sinking ship. I'd rather get in the good books of someone who might pay it back one day. Welcome to King's Landing, folks. After another day of awfulness, Tyrion at least gets a break back in his cell, with yet another visit from Uncle Kevin. Is the quote. Even through the thick stone walls of the Red Keep, Tyrion could hear the steady wash of rain. Say that again, Uncle. I could swear you urged me to confess. If you were to admit your guilt before the throne and repent of your crime, your father would withhold the sword. You would be permitted to take the black. Tyrion laughed in his face. Those were the same terms Cersei offered Eld Stark. We all know how that ended. Not surprising that Tyrion is wary of the wall offer, even though he quite enjoyed his time up there and got on with Jill Mormont and Jon, and it's preferable to death at least. This is what Cersei and Joffrey have ruined with their betrayal of Ned though. The normal rules don't apply, so no offer can be trustworthy. The whole system is broken down because of their betrayal. The motivation behind such an offer is interesting. The easy answer would be that Tyrion wants to avoid the Kinslayer curse, but I think we all know he's not that sort of guy. More likely, he is considering the strength of the family. Tyrion is being removed, there's no doubt on that mark, but it doesn't look good for the royal family to be executing each other just after one of them has supposedly murdered another. That kind of thing catches. The recent conversation with Jamie plays a part, but yet again we have to drop the optics word. As many Lannisters as there are, they have been thinned out in this war. Killing another seems like a wasted opportunity. Why not send Tyrion to the wall and let him have a crack at this wilding threat they keep hearing about? Either he toys away into a cold nothingness and never bothers them again, or rises high as a useful contact later on. Of course, that's if you believe the offer is genuine at all. Kevin goes on a little speech to try and persuade that it is. Of all the things we could say about Kevin, again, there's a lot, check out the Lion Shadow, Rain of Beefish, the most prominent is that he truly does love his brother. Tyrion says this is the most passionate he's ever seen his uncle, and it's just as true for the reader. It's really interesting to see this papered over version of opinion on Tywin, where we ignore all the truly evil stuff and focus on what Tywin did for his family. And to be fair, I do agree he got shafted on the kings he had to serve, but that's no excuse. It just goes to show that every character in this universe is well written. For those of you who are basketball fans, NBA fans, there's a common saying that there's no such thing as an untradeable contract. It's the same here. There's no character in A Song of Ice and Fire that George can't make another character sympathise with with his superior writing. That's his genius. Another quote from Kevin here. And if you are blameless, there is fighting in the North, I know, but even so it will be a safer place for you than King's Landing, whatever the outcome of this trial. The mob is convinced of your guilt. Were you so foolish as to venture out into the streets, they would tear you limb from limb. Kevin makes a really good point about this not ending even if Tyrion somehow got out of the trial. No matter the mob outside, Cersei is inside, and there is no way she is going to rest now, as she certainly seems to have the friends to help her out at the moment, whereas Tyrion has nothing. He would almost certainly be removed from his small council position, I don't imagine he'd be allowed near Tommen in any capacity, just in case, and his bride is gone too. That jaunt around the three cities he mentioned last week seems like an even better idea. Were he to be declared not guilty, could he really see himself living out the week? Kevin's speech and passion nearly get through, and we're allowed a few moments to imagine what Tyrion on the wall would actually look like. In fairness, it'd be one of the best times for him to arrive. He's friendly with the boy who's about to be Lord Commander, and the Night's Watch is in no, is in no state to turn anyone away or waste their potential talents. Depending on when he arrived, Tyrion would be a beyond valuable asset in terms of just getting the watch into shape, let alone planning to repel Mans or the others, for a multitude of reasons that we already know about. But that's looking at it in a vacuum. What if Tyrion got up there roughly the same time as Stannis? Wouldn't that be an interesting interaction between the two main combatants of the Battle of the Blackwater, or between the man who deployed the wildfire and the man who lost his sons to it? 
and then timing it's even more interesting. If they meet before Tyrion has a chance to say his O's, does Stannis try to punish him for the battle? Or does he have a room in his camp for a proven commander he evidently respects and now bears a major, major grudge against the family Stannis will one day have to deal with? Alas alarms, alas alarms all over. Somebody get on the fanfiction for that one, please. They will call me Kinslayer to the end of my days. For a thousand years or more, if I am remembered at all, it will be as the monstrous dwarf who poisoned his young nephew at his wedding feast. Is there a better line for relating Tyrion to Jamie? Alright, we're missing a G from the word Tyrion is focusing on, but it's the same principle. Once upon a rebellion, Jamie held a sword in his hand and had to make a decision. He could kill his king and be labelled for the rest of his life, or he could not. He made a choice and stuck with it. Tyrion seems unwilling to do the same. Now in fairness, there isn't the city to save with a sword this time round. Joff is already dead, so Tyrion is lacking an incentive here. But I think the point he's missing is that this scenario he's imagining is already happening. Whether he's executed, gets sent to the wall, or even if he escapes. This is how he's going to be remembered. But ultimately, it isn't the reputation that bothers him. This is not being able to trust his father. The risk is just too big. So we head to day three of the trials. And really, is it not surprising that a verdict hadn't already been reached? Even without Varys and what comes in his next chapter, the evidence is pretty damn stacked and obvious. I'm split by it being Tyrion's high birth affording more evidence, or if Tywin is just enjoying putting his son through this. And this time, we go straight for a big hitter, an essential nail in the coffin that takes up the entire day, when Varys not only tells all these tales, but actually provides written accounts of the whole things. And that's pretty new, having written evidence has never been mentioned before. No one brings up the fact that just because it's written doesn't mean it's true, but I guess the surprise factor is distracting the crowd from such. Varys doing this relates directly to the conversation we had about him last week, about having to stay on the right side of Cersei when she comes calling, to say nothing of Tywin. If they come looking to the Master of Whispers for information, and he has none to offer, he might soon find himself in the unemployment line. So he's kind of stuck here, and again, it was a working relationship he developed with Tyrion. Respect is there, sure, but not doing this in court isn't going to further Varys' hidden ambitions. It's a quick Tyrion thought. Half-truths are worth more than outright lies. Precisely, that's the message we've shown throughout all of this chapter, and Varys is the master of half-truths and hidden meanings. Remember earlier in this book, when he just outright told everyone about Daenerys. That's the kind of thing we mean. This long chapter ends where it began, back in a tower cell. The big guns are still to come in Tyrion's next chapter, so this one is left for just feeling utterly defeated. The trial seems pretty damn set, what else is there to say? Which makes it so very interesting when Oberyn Martell turns up in Tyrion's cell. After getting the initial question of whether either of them poisoned Joffrey out of the way, as well as some wine talk, Oberyn reveals he's been included in Cersei's efforts for this trial, but first he comes out with this. As Shatea's, I bedded the black-skinned girl. Alayea, I believe she is called. Exquisite, despite the stripes on her back. If you want to hear a source willing to dish dirty on Cersei, as well as having information on Tyrion, this is a pretty good place to start, so I wonder how much of an influence Alayea was, but the point Oberyn's making is that, like Bronn, Cersei has made a certain offer. This time it's marriage, ironic considering Tywin was already going to betroth Cersei to Oberyn. Luckily, Tyrion gets his first good news of the day when Oberyn uses the tale of Dornish history to get his answer across. I know the tale, said Tyrion. What of it? Just this. If I should ever find a sash beside my own bed and pull on it, I would sooner have the scorpions fall upon me than the queen in all her naked beauty. Oberyn also makes a really good point about how he could have been accused if Tyrion wasn't. But the difference is, he has allies, Tyrion doesn't. Even if there wasn't a sibling rivalry on history and prophecy that we're yet to learn about that guaranteed Cersei looking at Tyrion and only Tyrion, Oberyn has men with him in the city and all of Dawn boiling down there in the south. To accuse him would have been a bloodbath. Though, given what we come to know of Doran, what would his reaction have been if that had actually happened? I lean towards him actually being more proactive in this situation. He doesn't rush in after Oberyn's death because he doesn't want to waste any further life. But if there's still a chance to save Oberyn, 
I say he makes a big move. But the point Oberyn bleeds into here is actually the setting up of Arianne's feast plotline, when he mentions the possibility of crowning Marcella and dividing the Lannister family even further. Clearly, this is where the idea originated for Arianne and the others, but it never gets far enough for Cersei to have to choose between her children, which would have been pretty fascinating to say the least. It's also a great reminder about Marcella being down there in the first place. We've spoken a lot about Tyrion's loose ends and former seeds coming back to hurt him, but Oberyn and the Dornish wouldn't be here to save him at all if not for the deal that he struck all the way back in Clash. It's nice for one seed to come back good. Your father, said Prince Oberyn, may not live forever. Something about the way he said it made the hairs on the back of Tyrion's neck bristle. Suddenly he was mindful of Elia again, and all that Oberyn had said as they crossed the field of ashes. He wants the head that spoke the words, not just the hand that swung the sword. Oh yes, now we're sitting up and paying attention. Another Oberyn quote here. Is it treason to say a man is mortal? Valamorgulis was how they said it in the Valeria of old. All men must die, and the doom came and proved it true. Surprisingly, we never learnt from Jack and Agar what Valamorgulis actually meant. Yet this is not the first time we've heard the phrase in Storm of Swords. Can you guess the first time? It was Mance Raider in John's opening chapter of the book. Why did he say it? He was singing The Dornishman's Wife. What an absolutely brilliant connection that is, from the first mention to a Dornishman now, now giving us the translation so much later. That's a pure George genius moment there. Daenerys also does mention it in Danny Free, but it's not explicitly clear as the translation for Valamogulis. For what it's worth, Egret also says it to John, so perhaps it's just that she heard Mance singing. Anyway, back to the main point here, with another quote. It was Sir Greyrock again who smashed Prince Aegon's head against the wall and raped your sister Elia with his blood and brain still on his hands. What is this now? Truth from a Lannister? Oberyn smiled coldly. Your father gave the commands, yes? No. He spoke the lie without hesitation and never stopped to ask himself why he should. So the reason for Oberyn's visit is now out in the open and exactly as Tyrion predicted now that we're talking about the rebellion explicitly. But when it comes down to it, Tyrion still lies and tries to cover for Tywin, despite it all, without even knowing why. It's the same as when he walked towards a grieving Cersei instead of leaving. That's how deep these family bonds go. That's how intrinsic it all is. He's still a Lannister, through and through, and currently sees Oberyn as the outsider, even with the situation he's currently in. I briefly considered if anything would have been different if Tyrion had said yes. Oberyn would have his confirmation and be able to move on from there, but I don't think it actually does. He still wants to kill Gregor first off, and he still wants the admittance of the Order to be public. But either way, as the chapter closes, we get an answer for why Oberyn Martell was even included in this book and our hairs really do get to stand on end. Your innocence may be as plain as the scar on your face, but it will not save you, no more than your father will. The Dornish prince smiled. But I might. You? Tyrion studied him. You are one judge in free. How could you save me? Nor as your judge, as your champion. What a cliffhanger ending. Tyrion seemed dead and buried only for this sudden spark of hope to appear at the very end, and as a spark we've been incredibly intrigued by ever since he showed up. We've heard tales of his intellect, his sexual appetites, and of his supreme fighting skill. Well, the first two have turned out to be true. Why not the third? The possibility of Gregor actually falling to this mysterious but well-built-up character really has the blood going after all we've seen and heard of the mountain in Aya's chapters, to say nothing of his past. But it also comes one chapter after Sandor thinking about Gregor's comeuppance, so there's some more nice chapter sequencing going on. But at this moment, I'd think it very hard to think about other upcoming chapters at all given the cliffhanger. Clearly, we all really, really want to see this dude fight, especially when he's taking on one of the biggest villains of the entire series. But we shall have to wait. As we move on to our final chapter of the day, still in King's Landing, Jamie 8. Oh so cruelly, George is going to make us wait for advancement in the Tyrion chapter, although the first time reader might have held out hope that this was not the case, as we don't yet leave King's Landing. The first time I might have hoped that we were about to see this trial by combat through Jamie's eyes, which would have been incredibly interesting. 
in the same way we saw his original through Catelyn's back at the Eyrie. Alas, the first time to be disappointed as this chapter is used to focus on Jaime going all in on his assuming command of the Kingsguard and this new life path he has chosen for himself. However, before we get to the Kingsguard stuff, we do learn that Jaime has actually been present at the trial and hearing all of the evidence. He's just been keeping to the back and sticking with this ghostly theme of hardly being recognised in the city in which he was once famous. His family similarly ghost him, which is handy for pushing him all the more into his law commander mindset. But also, it's lonely. I'd love to know what difference it would have made for Tyrion to recognise his brother in the crowd, or even what difference it would have made for Jaime, but for now, he has another focus in mind. The room was round, its walls of whitewashed stone hung with white woollen tapestries. It formed the first floor of White Sword Tower. Obviously, the descriptions we get of White Sword Tower were of particular interest to me when writing the castle's book, but this is interesting to any reader. It's a key section to Red Keep we've hardly heard any mention of throughout the books, but are now granted open access to, and consider its importance throughout history. Even before the World Book or Fire and Blood, we knew so many of the tales that would have seen a major playtime in this very room and this very tower. But with those books, our heads are near exploding. Cast your minds back through Fire and Blood. Pick out one of your favourite Kingsguard stories, or, one of, or even one of the most infamous. Chances are, large parts of it ran through this room. This is right up there with the Tower of the Hand in terms of historical importance. And just while we're talking about history, it's mentioned that the White Table is made of weirwood. I think we can all agree Bran's time-seeing skills are going to be limited to looking out of living weirwood trees like his visions of Winterfell. If he were ever somehow granted the ability to look out of any old piece of weirwood, this one would be a hell of a viewing piece to look out of. Can you imagine the story to get out of that? Definitely something to nerd over. Let's get back to how this all relates back to Jamie. We get taken through the pretty clear theme and decor of the room. Basically, make everything white. But for Jamie, it's a mix of everything being familiar, but yet very, very new and uncomfortable. I like that he likes his new rooms as Lord Commander, but there's also his sword feeling wrong on his hip. The Kingsguard whites he's been wearing for nearly 20 years no longer fitting. Later on he talks about how even his face looks different and older. He's lived in this tower for the majority of his adult life, but it still doesn't fit quite right. It's all a bit unfamiliar. And why does he feel uncomfortable? Because he doesn't feel worthy. Here's a quote. Worn thin by the bony arse of Barristan the Bold and Sir Gerald Hightower before him. By Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, Sir Ryan Redrine and the Demon of Darry by Sir Duncan the Tall and the pale griffin Alan Collington. How could the Kingslayer belong in such exalted company? Yet here he was. Luckily, much of this chapter is about making this table, this room, this tower, his. And again, it's a really cool table, carved in the shape of a shield supported by three great stallions. Yes, please. Cool design and history are infused together when Jamie turns his attention to the White Book, or the Book of Brothers. Firstly, the description of said book is absolutely beautiful, and I feel like we're supposed to appreciate it a little more after just seeing the lives of four kings hacked apart by Joffrey. In an alternate universe, I'd like to imagine Tyrion and Jaime pouring through this thing together for hours and end. But it's also the beginning of Jaime's new duties, and we get reminded of some logistics we wouldn't have even considered, like Jaime having lost his writing hand as well as his sword hand. Next, we get some reading time as Jaime indulges in the book and George indulges in getting some history out of his system. Barristan stopping off to record his firing in the white book before he escaped from the city is the most hilariously Barristan thing in the world. But the point of this is the long and varied description of Barristan the Bold compared to the stunted paragraph of Jamie the Kingslayer. It's weird enough seeing a life and career summed up in writing, that's part of what makes fire and blood so intriguing, but finding out the previous Lord Commanders didn't think enough of Jamie to record any of his extracurriculars is tough stuff and a blow to his ego. Jamie has been spending enough of his time lately thinking on what he's actually done with his life, but this is it really slapping him in the face. If they had bothered to include all the times he bunked off duty to sneak off with Cersei, he might have had the longest entry in the book. All of which is a great opening for some good old nostalgia, as Jamie remembers the Kingsguard as he first discovered it. The grand kind that would mop the floor of the current version. What's the theory? 
It is the nature of time that we can all relate to. Everyone thinks the sports team of their era is the best. It's just human nature. But Jamie is at least wise enough to realise he might have had rose-tinted glasses on as a teenager. Ones that were quite forcefully ripped off without having to wait long. And me. That boy I was. When did he die, I wonder? When I opened Eris's throat? That boy had wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane, but someplace along the way he had become the smiling knight instead. Jamie thinks on what exactly it was that changed him. When did the king... Well, he gets the opportunity to start trying to right such wrongs when his Kingsguard meeting begins and he gets to measure up exactly it, what it is he's dealing with. Plus, getting a cool extra story on Sir Arthur Dane is a little bonus. Not only because we've been hearing about his skills since the beginning, also it lines up when we're about to see another Dornish warrior show off his skills for Tyrion. Nonetheless, it was his seat and this was his Kingsguard now. Tom and Seven. It's a grim summation, even if highlights still persist in Sir Balon and Sir Loras. Either way, it's not a dream team for a new manager to work with. Jamie doesn't waste time in getting down to business, and thankfully, the official business coincides with his own personal investigation. It's a pretty bad showing that a king died in full view of five of his Kingsguard, and their reactions on that slight are telling. Even more telling is when Jamie asks who did the murdering. Sir Balon shifted uncomfortably in his seat. Sir Boris made a fist. Sir Osmond gave a lazy shrug. Yes, quite telling. Balon is uncomfortable because he knows his words were twisted against him to frame Tyrion in a negative light, in a negative light, even though he likely believes Tyrion innocent. Boris is angry just because Tyrion makes him angry, and it's a common response to being called out, and he knows exactly what lies he told. Osmond shrugs because he doesn't care who killed Joffrey, or that he died, probably. As we see, the whole thing is just a joke to him. So it's not surprising when Merrin and Boris lead the offensive and retell their lies from the trial, or when Balon Swan is the fair-minded one, pointing out they really have nothing but circumstantial evidence and that everyone had the same opportunity as Tyrion. Yes, it is more difficult when it comes to motive, but Tyrion's motive just happened to be the more public and personal than the rest. As we've seen with Littlefinger, when it comes to kings, especially kings like Joffrey, motive is a wide and complex thing. Loras is the last to chime in, with an angry appraisal of Sansa Stark surely being the murderer. I think this is quite telling that Loras is not in on the killing Joffrey part of the plot, which makes sense, he's probably far too hot-headed to be trusted with such a secret. After all, the Tyrells being openly against Sansa goes against any chance of eventually gaining her, like we discussed earlier, unless the plot is to publicly denounce her while actually hiding her back in Highgarden if they happen to find her first, but that's a bit of a rabbit hole to go down. Point is, you can make a narrative for anybody if you think about it enough. Another quote. For a start, it would be good to know how she got out of the castle. Varys may have a notion or two about that. No one knew the Red Keep better than the eunuch. So that's just a quick side note there, setting up the seeds for how Jaime will come to recruit Varys for Tyrion's escape later. But Jaime quickly tires of listening and moves into saying, whatever he does, Joffrey is dead. There's a new job now, keeping Tommen alive, so you'd best get on with it. These five were not the brothers he would have chosen, but they were the brothers he had. The time had come to take them in hand. Jamie has several choices in terms of his leadership style, and how he chooses to bridge his gap between the old and the new. He needs to establish dominance and authority as we discussed in our last Jamie chapter, but also can't risk having an even split or even mutiny, especially when he's been absent for so long, when he is actually the outsider, and when any of them could currently defeat him in a duel. So what to do? Play nice? Build it up? Jamie doesn't opt for those and instead goes for the choices that will likely get the job done best. This isn't a popularity contest he's interested in, it's a duty. At the first gate of Boris Blunt, everything that could be used against him is. It's a sound decision to punish Boris by making him a food taster. He's let himself go physically and proven he cares not for the protections of the royal family with the Tom and Fiasco. If Jamie lets that slide, then the precedent is open for all of them to do whatever they wish but Boros is actually smart enough to hit on the two points that can provide the greatest challenge to Jamie's authority, his killing of Ares and the loss of a hand. Basically, Boros is accusing Jamie of hypocrisy on two counts, 
You can't tell someone they are not a good Kingsguard when you yourself have broken the baseline law of what the Kingsguard is. You made the ultimate betrayal. You made the ultimate betrayal. In the same way, you can't tell someone they are unfit to guard the king when you can't even wield a sword anymore. Although I actually think Boris is merely using the word cripple as an insult, and to suggest Jamie is now a lower station than he, than he is rather than anything else. But Boris is kind of on the money. It would be very easy for the others to start echoing this if they liked, so Jamie has to make a retort and quickly. He's really only got the one choice. Jamie smiled. I agree. I am as unfit to guard the king as you are. So draw that sword you're fondling, and we shall see how your two hands fare against my one. At the end, one of us will be dead, and the king's guard will be improved. He rose. Or, if you would prefer, you may return to your duties. Jamie has to attack head-on. This is a symbolic argument between the two, and it needs to be nipped in the bud immediately. Jamie knows Boris, knows he's a coward, and uses his own famous skill to bounce the challenge right back to him. It all balances on a pinhead for a second, because Jamie truly knows this is him just making a face. This is just the facade of making it look like you know what you are doing, that you are actually capable. Welcome to an office of responsibility, Jamie. That's, that's pretty much how it goes. The whole thing works, specifically because it was Sir Boris who challenged him, possibly why Jamie opted to start with him. But Jamie is, is still wise enough to know his command hands by a thread. The man is craven and a good thing. Though fat, ageing and never more than ordinary, Sir Boris could still have hacked him to bloody pieces. But Boris does not know that, and neither must the rest. They feared the man I was. The man I am, they'd pity. Again, it's further setting up of Jamie's subplot in A Feast for Crows to restore his skill. And again, I say it's a shame Corrin Halfhand isn't around to ask for tips. Jamie continues down his list, next opting for Sir Osmond, who, as it turns out, absolutely sucks at thinking up a convincing backstory. Good job he's financed by Littlefinger, or he'd be dead in the water. Osmond is a great example of how the Kingsguard has fallen, and the central sellsword being let in back in Jamie's heyday? Unthinkable. But at least Jamie is willing to look for the positives in seeing Osmond's worth as a fighter. Still, the guy leaves looking like the grinning idiot he is. It's still all just a joke. Merrin Trant comes next, and Jamie resists the temptation to lay down a specific punishment as he did with Boris. Isolating both of the oldies likely would not be a good idea at all, but what he does do is make a definite change in how they operate. Henceforth, you will temper that obedience. My sister is Queen Regent, my father is the King's Hand. I am Lord Commander of the King's Guard. Obey us, none other. So Merrin got a stubborn look on his face. Are you telling me not to obey the King? The King is eight. Our first duty is to protect him, which includes protecting him from himself. Use that ugly thing you keep inside your helm. If Tom wants you to saddle his horse, obey him. If he tells you to kill his horse, come to me. Here we see the true cost of not having Barris and Selmy around once Joffrey became king. There was no one to actually tell the Kingsguard no, so the dullards went along with whatever command they got. If Barristan had been there, things with Sansa would never would have gotten so bad. At least you really, really have to hope not, as it's just a barrier Joffrey didn't have to contend with. Protecting him from himself, that's what the management of Joffrey needed, and Jamie is wise enough to see it even when he wasn't here to experience the worst of things. So there's that, and you know, some basic common sense about not listening to every demand of a child. Already, Jamie is effecting some real positive change. Balon Swan comes next, and you would think this would be the easiest of all five to deal with, but even this is used as a rule setter as Jamie questions Balon Swan over what he would do if it ever came to family versus king as it once did for him. I suppose there is an element of all these mini Kingsguard interactions being reflection of past Jamie. Loras is obvious as we'll discuss in a minute, Balon is family versus duty, Merrin is the obeying of orders you really shouldn't obey, and Osmond is either skill at arms or just general horniness for Cersei. It's just Boris being left out. We have to feel bad for Balon. He's already been made uncomfortable while up in the stand. Now he not only has to tell his new boss, after all he's sticking up for him, they will not only kill his brother if it comes to it, but they will not imitate said boss by doing that supremely awful thing the new boss did. 
He literally has to wipe away the sweat of his brow. It's a stressful day at the office, but he passes the test. Well done, Bayon. That just leaves Loris, the difficult one. These two men have already had one run-in, where it was obvious they were just the same bus coming along at different times. But now it is painfully slow. Jamie hated that smile. I was better than you, Sir Loris. I was bigger, I was stronger, and I was quicker. And now you're older, the boy said. My lord. My lord. He had to laugh. This is too absurd. Tyrion would mock me unmercifully if he could hear me now, comparing Cox with this green boy. Again, at least Jamie has some self-awareness about exactly what he's doing with this teenager in the moment. Older and wiser, sir. You should learn from me. As you learned from Sir Boris and Sir Merrin. It was all in good fun for a moment there, but this is too much, as Jamie notes. Giving lip to Jamie is one thing, but to focus on Boris and Merrin is to ignore the true, great Kingsguard that Jamie actually grew up around, and that is something he cannot allow. For all the troubles Jamie would share with these men, especially in terms of their advice to let Ares do whatever he liked, he damn well respects them, and they occupy his thoughts often, even after all these years, hence the presence of the White Book. A large part of Jamie's mission as Lord Commander is to promote the noble history of the Kingsguard he knew, so that people forget the shame of the one they have now. But Loras has a cocky answer for that too, so Jamie switches subjects and uses his position to get some more information on Blackwater and what he's dealing with in the Tyrells. At the same time, he gets a much better measure of the boy behind the sword when Loras answers with this. I will defend King Tom with all my strength, I swear it. I will give my life for his if need be. But I will never betray Renly, by word or deed. He was the king that should have been. He was the best of them. Cocky little star athlete he might be, but Loras has some amazing lines in this book whenever Renly's name comes up and his guard comes down. I think a part of this passage is Jamie wanting to make sure Loras doesn't become the same disillusioned but skilled young man that Jamie was. He can sense the truth of passion in Loras here, so there's a chance he won't have to suffer the same corruption, keeping Jamie from mocking him in any way. The chapter closes with one more topic of conversation between the two mirror images, Brienne of Tarth. Jamie expertly uses logic to disarm Loras of some notions he is confident in about Renly's death, slowly opening the boy's mind to other possibilities by using some handy comparisons to Joffrey's own death. It is a pleasure to watch Jamie act this way, and it actually has me wondering what could have been for this possible mentor-student relationship if Jamie had been able to stay in King's Landing and feast. But that's another alas alarm for us. We've got a lot of those today. The best part is when Jamie gives Loras the responsibility of deciding for himself what will happen with Brienne. He's giving Loras the opportunity to be fair, analytic, and a man of his own making. It's a really underrated moment for Jamie, especially as a teacher. Amongst all the chatting, Jamie has snuck in some solid compliments on Brienne, even if he doesn't notice it which is unfortunately counteracted by Loras telling us Renly's true thoughts on Brienne. They are sobering, to say the least. But if, like me, you think Renly was an ass anyway, this is just another match on the bonfire. But it also has Loras thinking about the men he killed for no reason, and guilt is certainly something Jamie can speak with knowledge about. He absolves the younger Loras, if that helps at all, but it directs him back to the questions he was asking in his last chapter. Why isn't he more pissed off about Joffrey? Why isn't he cutting people down in a rage? After a chapter focused on the Kingsguard, Jamie's final thoughts drag him back to his investigation and the main events of King's Landing. I wonder about his final line and the promise of debts to pay. That's just a standard Lannister line in many ways, but is it supposed to trick the first-time reader into thinking Jamie is going after his brother next? If so, he'll have to get in line, but seeing as this is such an amazing chapter for Jamie's growth and maturity, you have to include a couple of these questions at the end. And that is Jamie 8. That is part 14 of A Storm of Swords. Whew, a long one. Yes, I'm damn thirsty now. Collection of chapters I really like. Right in the middle there, we get real down, real low for Tyrion and Aya. But that Jamie one we just read, that's one of the most positive Jamie chapters we'll ever read. And I don't think I need to say uh, the heights that Davos and John re 
John reach of their respective victories, especially that John chapter. That's day for that's definitely my favourite of the day, but I'm just really loving John at the moment. Okay, I'm gonna get out of here quickly. Don't forget our halfway shout-outs. Girls Gone Cannon also did Jamie 8. Have a listen to that. Read that piece, The Lion's Shadow, Kevin Lanster by Brynn and Beefish. Well, Jeff, don't thank him though. He won't like that. He hates it. And check out Stephen Stark. Here be dragons on YouTube. And I know that nerd. That's always fun. Next time, only four chapters because, you know, we've got to fit in. Aziz has got to fit these in properly the last couple here. But they are Sansa 6, John 9, Tyrion 10, and Daenerys 6, the last Daenerys. So we go to the Vale, there's more warfare at the wall, we get the trial by combat that we've all been waiting for, and like I say, the final Daenerys, which I've also been really enjoying. I really love Daenerys and John in this chapter, in this book. Okay, I'm going to get going. Take care, everybody. I hope you're all safe out there. Keep, out, keep an eye out for Sporkle Spectacular and the coming Patreon-only episode. Don't forget to check us out if you'd like to, and I will see you next time. See ya!